All right. I'm sure everybody sort of sees the uh, the beginnings of that. Um, hi, guys. Uh, welcome to another live stream, another episode of Audio Files Anonymous. And for this week, we have uh, the wonderful Grover Neville, the very well known at this point within the audio community. <laughs> uh, he's he, he's now uh, wow. work, working with Odyssey. Um, but actually, I, I wanted to start off sort of just by asking you, you know, what's for those who are unaware, <laughs> um, you know, what's sort of your, your background in, I guess, the headphone world and audio in general? And, you know, I know you from the Interfidelity days and, you know, reading all of those articles yeah. back then. Um, but so, yeah, if you if mm -hmm. could give some sort of background on, on you know, just sort of who, who you are and uh, what, what got you to, to the place that you're at now. Yeah. So um, I'm going to just start at the beginning and run through it real quick. So I was 13, I think, 12 or 13. And um, I had a pair of Skullcandy headphones that had just broken. And um, this sounds like such a cliche. My, my dad was an audiophile, you know, he had old Vandersteens and things like that when I was a kid. And I kind of knew about it, but it was, he would always try and sit me down and listen. I, it was cool, but like, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, dad. Uh, and then my, one of my uncles gave me a pair of skull candies um, that I mostly used to play my digital piano when I was in middle school. Uh, and when those broke, I went on a search for a new pair. And that was kind of how I got into headphones, um, moving from like, scuffling through stuff at Best Buy and thinking like, you know, the more I listen to this stuff, the more it doesn't sound that great. And then discovering, you know, a pair of Sennheisers are like, oh, this is like, this is kind of cool. And then, you know, I think I was uh, just, it was, I was like 13 or just early 14 when I went to my first um, HeadFi meet, which was uh, in Chicago. Uh, Jude was there, Ray Samuels was there. He brought like three Lamborghinis. It was one of the old classic for people who remember the old head five meets, like the one of the big old cool Chicago meets. Um, that was a huge deal. Those were like our mini conventions. There was like a hundred people there. Yeah. Um, I was blown away and I was like, you know, I was this little 13 year old kid. I didn't know anything. I was <laughs> super interested in all this. So um, after a couple of years, you know, high school, college, whatever, kind of saving up money here and there, buying headphones, things like that. Um, went to music school. Uh, I got a gig um, with, uh, Interfidelity, actually Tile was the one who hired me originally. Um, and Tile had originally hired me to do measurements, um, oh, for Interfidelity because he needed someone to do the measuring. Um, and then, uh, after that, uh, he was like, well, Hey, do you want to do writing? You know, can you write? And I was like, well, I actually had a creative writing major as well as my music degree. Um, so yeah, I'd love to do some writing. So we talked about it and we did some writing and we'd, you know, he would hand me some products and things like that. It was mostly electronics, mostly amplifiers and things like that and DACs um, because he would do obviously most of the full size headphones, IEMs, you know, stuff like that was all things that I would do. Um, and then, you know, Tile, of course, departed Interfidelity and they brought Rafe on from, I believe he was at PTA or he was running AudioStream actually at that time. And they put Rafe in charge of Interfidelity mm -hmm. uh, and Rafe, that was kind of, I mean, in the stereophile group, running a single publication is, is a big, you know, responsibility. So he was tasked with running audio stream and interfidelity, which was just too much. One person can't do that much work. Um, so, uh, he kind of passed it off to me and that was sort of the couple of months where I had become essentially the de facto, uh, dude at interfidelity. Um, and then Rafe departed, um, and interfidelity, you know, kind of had, uh, had, designs to, you know, well, I was the only person there, right? So I was essentially running the site. Um, 
and uh, I departed actually not too long after that um, because I got uh, an offer of employment from Odyssey, um, which was, you know, well, just to be frank, paid better and <laughs> was more interesting to do. Um, so uh, <laughs> that's how I moved from the, right. you know, from the altruistic side of reviewing to the evil skeezy manufacturer side. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. But no, so so Odyssey, actually, I had talked to at NAMM. Um, and actually, pe some people may remember I did some work for shit, actually, before Interfidelity. Um, yeah. So there was... I think what I... Uh, I was, a little I, bit of stuff that I did there. It was mostly... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think when I like, it was uh, sort of Googling your position, official position at Odyssey, a bunch of stuff from Shit Audio showed up. And I was yeah. like, wait, what? Yeah. Did I get this wrong? <laughs> I was actually with them probably for the longest for two yeah. or three years. I, I eventually kind of was uh, in charge of customer support at one point Okay. Um, before I before I left. Uh, and then, um, and that was very amicable. I still love, love those guys and wonderful product, wonderful, you know, relationship with them. Um, they make great stuff. Uh, and so then, um, let's see. Yeah. So then, uh, I met Odyssey. I mean, I knew Sankar and Jaren a little bit before, um, just from being in the community, but I never owned Odyssey headphones. Uh, mm -hmm. and I met them at NAM actually, which is a professional music, um, convention in right. uh, January, 2019. Uh, and they had said, you know, we're looking for someone to do social and video and stuff like that. We really want to, um, up our game in that department um, and we want to kind of improve our branding and have someone who can communicate with the customers be interface with the community more um, mm -hmm. because we you know haven't had the bandwidth to do that um, so fast forward again and you know uh, I think June or July I had been doing part-time work for Odyssey and they said hey we're making this full-time position would you be interested I said yes uh, so I've been with them since about full-time it's been August or September I think um, so it's only been a couple months it's still relatively new position um, right and uh, yeah so if you see anything on the Odyssey social YouTube pages things like that uh, twitch that's all kind of um, stuff that I have a hand in right um, so and that role is continuing to expand as we have you know all sorts of interesting fun exciting new stuff coming up that's something that I'm getting handed more and more uh, responsibility with so right that's kind of how I ended up at Odyssey this is sort of I guess 12, uh, this is t 11 or 12 years for me that the hi-fi journey has really started. And it's kind of, I never expected that it would end up working right. for a manufacturer <laughs> of headphone gear. Certainly not one like, you know, that's as well known as Odyssey or anything like that. That wasn't something I ever imagined being mm -hmm. able to do, but um, you know, not certainly not when I was like 13 or 14, uh, but here I am. So it's, it's like I said, it, to me in my mind, it's kind of been like the culmination of like a 10 to 12 year journey. Right. Right. Um, I'm, I'm 25 now. So uh, I've been around, like I've been around the block on headphones and things like that. But, right. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of how I ended up at Odyssey. Yeah. Um, that's just a short, quick and dirty summary yeah. of who I am. Um, in terms of you know the background, uh, I'm a musician. I play keyboards. I sing. I play you know brass wind instruments. Um, I went to Oberlin Conservatory. I did a lot of studio recording as well as performance stuff. Um, big music theory nerd. Uh, I work also on the side in the film and music post-production industries. Um, I do some work with some pretty uh, well-known mastering engineers on some pretty cool records. Um, and I do, you know, film sound mixing. I do composing for video games and film. So I have lots of musical life, you know, outside of hi-fi. Uh, but hi-fi has always been a passion for me. And now I have, you know, a stereo system at home right. as well as headphone rigs and, and all sorts of other stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and I have, you know, 
too many interests, but that's kind <laughs> that's... of a little bit about me. Yeah. So yeah, it's always how yeah. it goes. Um, so you've it's it's funny you you started young <laughs> with this uh, with this mm -hmm. stuff, and uh, it's it's great yeah, to see that it's uh, yeah that it's you know it's gotten you to this to this point, and it's a it's an interesting to trajectory to follow, I suppose. Um, but actually, I wanted to ask. I mean, are you still at all you know in contact with Tile? Have you heard from him at all since he? You know, went off in his uh, van <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. So um, I actually don't. Uh, I don't hear from him super often. Last mm -hmm. I heard, actually, this is I heard from. Um, I don't know if you know Brian Hunter at Audiohead. No, I don't. But I was chatting with him, and he was actually pretty good friends with Tile. And uh, Tile, uh, I don't know how many people know this, but he basically packed his life up into a van and just roams the country and has uh he at one point had this crazy huge pa system and he had this auditory experience thing that you would like walk through and be immersed in all this interesting sounds and mm -hmm. it was kind of an interesting avant-garde artistic experience um but yeah i think he's you know last i heard he was still healthy and doing you know reasonably well and i mean living you know living in a van roaming the country kind of very <laughs> free form yeah so that's about what I know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. As far as the, uh, I don't know if you could talk about this, but the the time when Rafe took over Interfidelity, I think there were a lot of people in the headphone community who were just sort of wondering, like, what what's going on with with the measurements, and so there was a lot of question marks surrounding, yeah. like, you know, as soon as as soon as I guess Stereophile, um, you know brought Rafe in those measurements are like they kind of went away right so uh, um, I, I guess the question yeah. is like is you know do you have any insight into into what went on there or is that something you could talk about <laughs> so yeah I mean I, I was I was I never signed any NDAs sure so okay I'll do my best to <laughs> yeah to make everybody look you know yeah. uh, uh, look good but um, <laughs> you know essentially and and the other thing too is my I didn't have necessarily the deepest understanding because the thing about when i worked at the stereophile group was there was very much like uh you know the people who ran things were kind of up in the air and sort of mysterious and then there was a couple people who i worked with directly on just publishing things and stuff like that but it, it was very mysterious to me mm -hmm. and I, I i mean i was given a fair amount of leeway in some regards and then there were a couple hard ground rules but they didn't really necessarily tell me a lot right mm -hmm. so it wasn't like I came in and I had all this transparency. Even when Tile was there, there was, you know, because that was post um, AV Tech Media taking over. Right. And so there was a lot of just like, you know, the overlords send down their commandments and we're like, uh, okay. I mean, we were never really told what the logic behind any decisions was or anything like that. And I don't want to say it was bad or that we were like, this is dumb or stupid. It was just kind of like, we didn't have a lot of transparency or insight in the process. We wrote articles, we sent some stuff in and they sent paychecks, you know, Mm -hmm. eventually and it was like that was just the relationship yeah. um so uh so essentially you know what happened uh the, the tile had someone else doing the measurements at that point and actually um someone else i i can't say who but there is a company um uh, uh pretty well known actually in the headphone room company that purchased tiles rig mm -hmm. um, and they use it for their measurements um some people in the community may know who they are, um, but they asked me not to say their name sure. when yeah. they told me this. So anyways, but they have that rig um, and they put it to good use and they're wonderful guys and they make great products. Um, so that is where that rig is now. So it's not dead. Um, but at the time, you know, Rafe had been pushing to get the measurements done and, and there was a big problem with like 
tiles rig was old and it's a bit difficult to use and it needed some updating. There were things that were broken on it. Um, there were times when sometimes it, it wouldn't, you know, uh, it was just frustrating. You would have to redo measurements a lot and it was an old weird mm. system. It used this weird old computer yeah. that was like ancient and I ran on like some old DOS system. And it was, <laughs> yeah. oh, it was, it was archaic, you know, and, and as great as that was, you know, there's always this difficulty, right. And, and critical, right. And, and you guys I'm sure have this as well, where it's like, cool, we have all these measurements in this old rig. And now BNK came out with this new head that costs a bunch of money and has totally different, you know, yeah. compensations. It's like, well, we can't just throw out all, we don't want to throw out all the old reference stuff, but we don't have to remeasure every single piece of gear we've ever measured, you know? So yeah. That was something that was difficult. They had a guy in the UK who was going to measure stuff and had a really high-end, nice rig, and they were going to keep all the old measurements up, but then put up new measurements, essentially, right. and kind of try and do this this way. Uh, I don't know what the specific drama there was, but it didn't happen, right? Um, one of the in issues was that manufacturers would have had to send two pieces of gear out every time they sent gear out for review, because Rafe lived in Vancouver, I lived in Chicago, and the guy right. who was doing the measurements lived it was Keith lived in the UK. So it was like a big shipping, you know, hassle. Yeah. But then also I think, you know, the folks at AV Tech Media, I just don't know if they really ever understood interfidelity completely um, and, and what it was and what we were trying to do. And I think it was kind of, they were like, why do you want measurements? Um, and it got to the point where they finally told, you know, Rafe and myself, like, don't talk to Keith, like do not contact Keith. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Again, I don't know what the logic was behind that. I don't want to demonize anybody, but there was some, something happened there. And so that kind of, despite the best efforts of, of Rafe and myself to try and get those measurements um, set up, it just, it never happened. Um, That's interesting. And that was something that, that both of us did push for because we yeah. wanted it. We both understood that that was an important part of the site. That was something that, I mean, I remember looking at those measurements and referencing them over the years, many, many times myself, you know, that was a tool that I used. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something that I was kind of sad to see fall by the wayside. Um, but again, I don't, I don't know that necessarily anyone ever really at AV Tech Media understood what Interfidelity was and what was trying to do. Yeah. Um, and so from there, it became also, they had a huge content ask. And so there were some pieces of content that I wasn't entirely happy with that we published, but their ask for the amount of content they wanted published was more than two people could do. It was right. just, it was enormous. Um, and so, you know, I think... I'm a little, I was a little upset, but I think that in, in some ways, you know, it got, and it, the other thing too was like, it got hard to get gear at the end. We had, we had difficulty getting people to send us gear mm -hmm. um, and getting, you know, um, getting stuff on the docket. So it got very difficult to continue to just produce quality, the quality content, the kinds of content. Um, and then with the pandemic hitting, right. um, they had to let some staff go, you know, Rafe departed um, and there just wasn't support for, you know, me to run the website by myself without any sort of team or support um without necessarily the funding that would have been needed to do that um so and that was a point where i was kind of like i was freelance at that point so it was like i need i need to pay rent so <laughs> yeah. i was just you know yeah <laughs> but it's... you know it, it, it was uh, sink or swim kind of in a sense yeah. for a lot of people especially people who were freelance in the entertainment industry like myself so it was kind of one of those things where i was like i just didn't you know it didn't make sense, financial sense anymore, unfortunately. Um, and uh, the amount of work that they were asking for was was just wasn't yeah. commensurate with with uh, yeah. compensation. So it seems like me, a, again, I'm not saying that they paid poorly or anything yeah. like that. It was just wasn't wasn't realistic for me anymore. So that's kind of how it felt. I was shocked to find out that they um, had 
show, shut the whole site down. I thought they would at least keep it up for the archives and things like that because there were still a lot of hits yeah. and people still visited the archives frequently. And um, I, I told them, you know, if you guys want some help finding a new person or you want a few names, here's a few names you should you should get in touch with. I don't know if they ever did, um, but that was, you know, that's all history now. So I think also in a sense, nobody was ever going to be able to fill Tile's shoes. Right. Um, he was such a titan within the headphone industry, right, within the headphone hobby um, that I certainly felt a pressure. It was like, crap, like I'm, you know, I'm not Tile. I can't be Tile. Um, not and the same beard. I was inspired by Tom myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't have, this is, I haven't shaved for like three weeks. Yeah. So that's my, you know, yeah. uh, that's my, my mom's, you know, thanks mom. She's, uh, she's Asian <laughs> and it's like the miracle of the Asian hair follicles. It's like, no, no beards. Um, anyways, uh, yeah. So, you know, there was a, certainly, I felt a pressure to try and live up to Tile's legacy. And it was like the granddaddy of the headphone hobby. Like nobody's going to live up to that, you know? So we did our best, um, and there were certainly some very fond memories I have of working with Tile and working with Rafe, and and we had fun. You know, it wasn't all bad stuff. Uh, um, even the end wasn't bad stuff. It was just you know amicable yeah. um, departure. But but I was sad to see it go. For me, it was a piece of history. You know, yeah. because it was a big part of my headphone experience as a, as a kid. You know, as a kid growing up and reading the site and paying attention to that, and um, you know, so I was sad to see it go. But yeah. I almost That's, think, in a sense, I don't know if anybody could have really taken it over and done it justice. I think that there was a lot so. of people in the community who were really sad to see it go. And uh, it's yeah. it's really interesting that you, you you point out that Rafe was pushing for measurements. And I think that, you know, there was there was a bit of a disconnect there with uh, when it came to, like, you know, the way people saw that. <laughs> because the, the, I think the public perception was something yeah. along the lines of, like, there's tile and then we get all the measurements. And then this new guy comes in and suddenly the reviews are not... That you know, it's not the kind of focus that many of the you know, I guess uh, the enthusiasts right. were, were were looking for, and it seemed like a shift in direction. But it's interesting to hear yeah. that it actually they, that he was pushing for trying to get measurements. It's just that this is like a you know, yeah. and in in many ways that kind of makes it like a perfect storm for you know, if if the higher ups don't understand necessarily the point of the measurements or why that's so you know right. sought after, that then you know uh, it it it's not going to get as much traction and then that influences the ability to get gear and you know all this this kind of stuff so yeah sorry i'm laughing at the chat the chat oh some funny stuff in the chat also metal 571 pointed out very uh accurately that you can still get the pdfs from yes. the wayback machine which uh is a great point um somebody should store those on like a wix site or something does like that. Maybe I'll do that does that include um, the uh like yeah, tiles it, articles like his uh educational if if it had saved them, because the Wayback Machine yeah. would save uh, websites at certain dates, so it should have them saved up to whatever the most recent date is, I would think. Um, yeah. 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 But yeah, you're totally right. So, I mean, Rafe had a different style than Tile. That is just, you know, anyone who's read his work at PTA, who mm -hmm. follows him at Resistor Magazine nowadays, knows. I I love Rafe. He's a great guy. He was always really friendly to me. I never had a problem with him. We're, we still chat every once in a while. Um, he has a very different style than Tile. He's a, a much more what some people would say lifestyle. He's mm -hmm. a speaker guy. He's into vinyl. He's into mm -hmm. Harbeths. You know, he wasn't, I don't think, as much of a headphone guy when he started the website. So to me, it was a little weird, first of all, that they put him in charge of audio stream, which is digital stuff. But right. I think he was certainly capable of that. But then it was a little even stranger that they also kind of, and I think, again, speaking to the fact that they just didn't understand interfidelity, were like, oh, yeah, uh, headphones, whatever, throw them in the corner. 
toss it into race corner and let him deal with it. And, and, you know, Interfidelity did really good numbers at the end of tiles, you know, peak, he was doing very good numbers. Um, and I think, you know, again, Rafe was never going to be tile, but he did push for the measurements because he understood that that was an important part yeah. of the site. Um, I, at Interfidelity, kind of tried to base my reviews on the way that Tile structured them. You know, he had a structure to his reviews that became kind of a standard for a lot of people, right? Really, like introduction, build quality and finish, you know, then page two, sound quality. How does the sound quality relate to the measurements? And then a conclusion of like, is this headphone worth your time? What does it sound like? Does it, you know, what does it offer? And yeah. that was kind of a structure. I think I noticed that was a thing that he started. And a lot of people do that now because it's a great format for reviews, right? Um, as opposed to, you know, again, someone like Rafe, who tends to write reviews more as like this sort of holistic story that's not always linear. And that makes for great fiction. And it really works for the kind of stories that he tells at Resistor, where it's like very much like this Japanese, you know, this crazy Japanese guy who has these weird horn speakers and has this crazy vinyl collection and these interesting, yeah. they're sort of flavor stories, you know, more than like, Tile was very much like hardcore measurements and how does what I'm seeing on the graph coordinate with what I'm hearing. Um, so it was a different style, certainly. I think it probably could have worked if there had, you know, continued to be measurements. That's just my opinion. But yeah, he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't deaf to what the community was saying. We read the comments and we knew what people wanted and were saying. Um, yep. But it was kind of one of those situations where it's like, well, the higher ups say that we can't, you know, don't talk about this, don't say anything about it. And it's like, at the end of the day, like we are getting a, a paycheck from them, you right. know? Um, and it wasn't like enormous amounts of money. Like reviewers aren't, you know this, right? Reviewers don't <laughs> yeah. get massive amounts of money to say nice things about products. Mm -hmm. But, um, and and certainly if you want to make money, Hi-Fi is not the realm to do it in. Um, you know, if you want to make money being dishonest, there are way easier places <laughs> to do it, like the stock market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it, it was just one of those things where it was like, well, we can't, what, what we want, what I wanted to say to community was like, we're trying, we really are honestly trying to do this right for you guys. And for reasons that, you know, that like we're not, we're not being worked with, like the, the folks are not working with us and, and we don't know why. Right. And so we really didn't have anything good to tell you guys. So it was like, it was kind of like damage control. It was like, well, what do we say? It was like, we don't have anything to say other than like, we're trying, <laughs> but that, that, that just sounds, that just sounds stupid. Right. When you say it, you're like, we're working on it and people are like, cool. You've been saying you're working on it for six months. Where are the fucking measurements? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. My, my no, no, no. By all means, this, this is, okay, cool. This is the more um, unfiltered live stream. Okay, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> I was, chilling. cause I was frustrated. I was very yeah. frustrated by that. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was upset by it. Yeah. Um, and, Tyler's and, drinking already, by the way. Oh yeah, kidding. yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if I've I've introduced you guys yet, and welcome Tyler to the to the stream. Um, we, uh, yeah, um, I think you're you're muted, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, it's muted. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for stopping by, Metal. It was good to see you. Oh yeah, sorry. I hope Cheers, Metal. Chat. That thing has been a giant pain in my butt today. Ah, oh, see, we oh, all have yes. that thing. <laughs> yeah, we've all got the cam link. Uh, yeah. I, I had to switch to my ATEM Mini just to get it to work. Uh, cam link just it gets super finicky with different hubs, USB hubs. So yeah, I noticed that too. If if I plug it in directly yeah. to my computer, it works a lot better. But the hubs yeah. sometimes it gets a little. So that longer. my understanding with that is that the initial like it, initially when you plug it in, it it goes into bulk collection mode or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And that like, doesn't always work with the port. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It depends somewhat on what SLR, like if you're using an SLR, it depends somewhat on yeah. what camera you're using. I actually yeah. find that 
like my Sony's were great with it because the Sony's are very, you know, digital in nature, mm -hmm. but they also um, have a, uh, it, it, so, some cameras, the especially older ones or um, some of the Canon sometimes, the lenses, like the focus on the lenses, if it's done, you know, digitally, they tweak out with the oh, weird yeah. link, <laughs> even yeah. on manual focus, they're like, ah, what is this crazy, you know, yeah. Yeah. thing. So it's, it's a little hit and miss. Crazy. Um, as Tyler's getting his setup going here. Yeah. Just get the, get the mic right in the shot. That's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Also, hi, Elnrick. It's really good to see you and I hope you're doing well. Uh, we should catch up sometime. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, I guess moving on to the Odyssey stuff. Um, <laughs> actually, um, actually, before we get that, get to that, um, you've said some interesting stuff about um, digital audio, and so, for example, I'm thinking of um, you were talking uh, just like a couple weeks ago, I think, about how when doing EQ, it's better to like in theory, it's better to cut than it is to boost and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit more about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, something that, you know. Um, and sorry, just was this in relation to like the Reveal Plus stuff or was it in relation to like. It's just in general. Oh, in general. Just okay. any time you do EQ, my take on it is it's always better to cut than to boost. Mm -hmm. That's something that a lot of um, production people will talk about in music, like mixing, mastering, post-production, things like that. Because yeah. um, in the analog realm, uh, and this is partially delivery format. So when you had vinyl as the primary format for listening to music, um, engineers were actually taught to boost the treble a little bit at every stage of the process. So on the mix console, you would boost the treble on the channel strip at every step along the way. And then when you maybe had outboard gear, compressor, or master bus, you would boost the treble just a little bit. And then when it get, would get to the cutting house, the mastering engineer would boost the treble just a little bit. Because what happens during the RIA cur curve is the boot the bass gets brought down so that the cutter head which is a very small needle that cuts the vinyl um can actually cut it if you have a huge bass it's not going to be able to cut yep. it as well yep. so what they do is they take all the bass they take the bass way down with the ria curve and then they boost it back up in the phono stage right right so your records have very little bass on them the phono stage boosts that bass back up to where it's supposed to be right but there's a bump there's a head what's called a head bump from the cutter head and so it causes a 50 hertz bass hump which is part of why vinyl sounds big and bassy and has huge bass and is like really fun to listen to, right? Um, and then the RIA curve also has a treble boost, right? And so the way that these treble boosts and, and bass cuts work, every engineer, uh, you know, you would lose a little bit of analog fidelity in the, in the treble region at every step along the way because analog gear is a little bit lossy in the treble, right? So you would boost it and boost it and boost it. And so by the time you got to your record, you wanted to make sure the record sounded bright enough and wasn't dull. So you've got treble that you know, with digital transfers of old records like old Michael Jackson or Boston or old rock and roll records, man, why are they so bright and thin and there's no bass? Because mm -hmm. they transferred it off of tapes, which were supposed to be cut to vinyl and have, you know, not yeah. a lot of bass. And if you listen to the vinyl record, the original vinyl, you're like, oh, there's a ton of bass. And it's like really, it's the frequency response is really pleasant. And you listen to the digital and you're like, God, this is like a terrible transfer. <laughs> it's so thin. And you know, you've heard that yeah. it's like old records. Yeah. And you're like, I remember the vinyl sounding cool and then the digital is awful. Yeah. So, Digital is the opposite of analog in that sense, in that we're taught to, as engineers, to cut only at every step along the way. And the reason for that is, I might be roasted by people who understand, you know, this stuff even better than I do. But my understanding of it is, whenever you do any sort of gain change in the digital realm, there's um, a word length 
uh, mm -hmm. bit word yeah. length, right? Yeah. Which has been talked about a little bit in the headphone circles. And essentially what bit word length is, is the, um, is the chunk of code that determines, you know, essentially the gain setting for, because digital uh, circuits essentially work similarly to the way analog circuits do. They're just in code rather than in, you know, transistors mm -hmm. and yep. tubes and things like that. So bit word length has to be recalculated every time you make a gain change, right? And you lose a little bit of data to truncation every time you do that. What right. happens when you boost is in digital is not only do you add noise, um, which digital has pretty low noise, but you'll always add a little bit of noise, is that you run the risk of having uh, more information lost than when you cut. And it has to do with how we do volume compensation, right? If you turn up the gain for the entire mix and then only cut via EQ, you're actually going to get a cleaner sounding digital mix than if you boosted everything and then cut the whole mix back. And it has to do with how bit word length is recalculated because it's, it, it's better to adjust gain for the entire mix down or up, sorry, than it is to boost every little thing. Because every time yeah, you yeah, boost, I got you. you've got yeah. say 50 tiny little boosts, which are destroying the bit word length a little bit more than 50 cuts, which are less damaging to bit word length and then boosting the whole thing, which does only one, you know, boosts are worse for bit word length than cutting essentially. Right. Okay. That's so a vast oversimplification of why that works. But translated to the consumer process, right. right? So with the Penrose EQ or Resolve or um, there's a million EQ, Sonarworks, anything you're using out there is generally best to cut for two reasons. One is that you are losing the least fidelity, right? But the other reason is that you have in consumer level stuff often a fairly aggressive auto gain function mm -hmm. and you don't want that auto gain function to be turning you down because as we know, right, transients and the punchiness, right, and the relative um, sense of dynamics in a headphone are determined a, a lot of times by transient and, you know, decay plot, uh, like what you see in a decay plot, right? The transients. What happens when you filter anything with an EQ or a gain plugin of any kind is you are losing transient definition, whether it's minimum phase and you're losing phase information or it's linear phase and you're getting transient ringing, right? Mm -hmm. So minimize that. If you cut, you are getting, you're essentially retaining the dynamics of the headphone by only cutting, right? Or, or any speaker, right? so that you don't have auto gain then also applying another layer of dsp on top of that so you're trying to minimize the amount of dsp so that auto gain isn't going nuts and you're also trying to preserve transient fidelity as much as possible and that's why generally you want to cut all the time with any sort right. of peak. that's my personal again vast oversimplification of that but that's my personal take on it um now is this something that's I'm just I'm just wondering if this is like more in the theory space or is this like more in the tangible like you know you can hear the difference side of things. I can hear the difference. Okay, cool, um, cool. So it's not I mean, just you know strictly theory and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing too is if you have say um, say your headphone has got not enough energy at uh, 2k, you want more 2k. Yeah. If you cut 4k and you cut 1k, what you end up with is something that sounds like you have more 2k but less processed and with greater punch because you're not pushing the driver further into a realm where it's not comfortable going mm. right drivers only have a maximum excursion they want to be pushed to some drivers take eq very well planar magnetic drivers yep. take eq really well right anyone who's ever tried to eq the base up on a sennheiser hd 800 to a point where it's really really satisfying and fat knows that it's just that there's limits to what that driver will do in that enclosure right right um and it's an amazing driver and i have this crazy set of modded hd 800s and i love them but there's a limit to what the excursion of that driver can do right yeah. um so 
to me, it sounds like, and again, because you're not, you don't have the auto gain function, you have to then pull down the volume. It's less processed sounding than a boost. Um, it's less grainy, like boosts oftentimes in the digital realm will sound gr gritty and grainy. Um, mm -hmm. and, and even distorted sometimes if you push them too much. So also not pushing the driver past where it's comfortable, right? Because cutting stuff just means, oh, the driver now has to do less of that of those two frequencies, much easier for it to do than to boost. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're going to get better transient fidelity because the driver is behaving in its passband in a way that the designer intended to, right? right. If the driver was supposed to have this much energy at 2K and it was damped that way, but you want more 2K, pulling back four and one is going to give you more 2K energy without pushing the driver first. It's going to make the driver uh, it's work less hard, right? It's right. going to make it easier for the driver to do what it does. Right. Um, so I, I never like had the reasons behind why I, I advocated for the more conservative EQ, but I imagine that this would be, would be one of them that yeah. you could, we could take, you know, an oratory EQ um, preset, you know, or something like that, where he's sort of done, or, you know, what uh, J uh, Jack Wapassan has done with the auto EQ and stuff like that, and perfectly match whatever target we want. But there are potentially reasons why we would want to be, you know, like three filters or something like that instead, or, you know, be right. a little bit more, you know, uh, yeah, fewer filters in general. Um, <laughs> and then also, I mean, what, so what you're saying, yeah, as well is that, you know, fewer filters, but also cutting rather than the yeah. boosting. Yeah. yeah, and the fewer filters thing too, uh, people think about EQ nowadays, especially people who are my age or of my demographic who are like young people who came into production and have only worked digitally. I've right. worked on analog boards and I have some friends who are vinyl masting, master cutting engineers. Um, actually some of the best vinyl mastering cutting engineers in the world. And they've explained this stuff to me. So I've been lucky enough to like learn about this. And I'm also like a massive nerd and I have a physics minor. And so I'm like kind of into this, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't know this if I was just a musician or even a mix engineer who was, you know, of my right. age or even in my thirties. Right. Um, but people think about that, that graphic EQ where you see multiple bands and you can pull it up and down and it's, you know, the modern EQ, right? Like fab filter pro Q or yep. DMP equilibrium or auto EQ or whatever. Yeah. That broken down into its component layers is a bunch of filters, right? So they're filtering everything out from that one band on either side. So you only get, you know, one to 2K and that has to be done either IR, FIR, which have different ups and downs, minimum phase or linear phase, you know, with all the associated aliasing, ripple, distortion, all those, you know, bit word length recalculation, all that stuff that happens that cause filters to distort, however small they do cause filters to distort. Um, and you have now 10 of those, right? Well, if you could have accomplished what you did with only two or three of those filters, why would you add the 10 other filters in? Because they're filtering the audio yeah. and putting it back in, but you ha your audio is being filtered, right? Yeah. And so this is why people in the pro world make a big deal of like, hey, when this uh, band isn't being used, it's out of the signal. Because that is a big deal. And there's, it's, not, it's not necessarily non-trivial to do that. So um, using as few filters as possible, using only the bands you need is better because you are literally doing less filtering to the audio. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned something just now about um, CSD, you know, decay plots and stuff like that. And yeah. I think in some you know core circles, there's um, there's a bit of debate as to what this stuff means. Um, in, in in large part, I mean, you know, going back and reading the stuff from Floyd mm -hmm. Tool about how headphones yeah. are minimum phase devices and stuff like that. What's sort of your your take on that? Um, so I think two, two things and what he means when he says headphones are minimum phase devices, uh, I mean, I think it's something that a lot of people are trying to address with, you know, um, like HRTFs and time delay and things like yeah. that. Just so everyone's aware, 
minimum phase device means that the time domain information would be proportional to frequency response. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, so I think in a sense, the, um, the, the head, the headphone, right. Has one major advantage, which is that the acoustic space that it acts in is very controlled, right? It's very, relatively to speakers <laughs> it's much easier to measure you don't have to have a giant anechoic chamber you don't have to have you know a really damped room and a super high quality super flat microphone even you can measure a headphone and it's relatively more simple than measuring a speaker in terms of cost and accessibility and things like mm -hmm. that right not saying it's simple or or trivial from a scientific perspective but it's simpler and less expensive than measuring a speaker and so um but speakers have just been around for longer right so when you are looking at um, waterfall plots, for example, to me, waterfall plots are one of my favorite things to, to look at in terms of measurements, because to me, they tell me the most about a headphone from a single plot, right? Um, if I only had two plots I could ever look at for any headphone for the rest of my life, my like desert island plots, it would be waterfalls and it would be uh, transient, like impulse response. Sure, yeah. Um, or possibly square wave, one of the two. Um, which is interesting that Tyler used to measure those and not many people measure those anymore. See, I I, and I asked people about that, those. you know, like even because I wanted to do that and then everybody mm -hmm. kept asking me, why would you want to, <laughs> why would you want to no. measure square wave? Oh, so. square wave tells you so many interesting <laughs> things. See, that's what I always, um, I always assumed from reading Tyler's stuff too, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so square waves, um, I mean the slew rate, right? Because a square wave is the sum of all possible mm -hmm. um, informational, musical informations within a given period, right? And a square wave, the way that a square wave meets should be theoretically perfectly 90 degrees with a perfect square wave. It mm -hmm. never is, right? And you'll see how the tip and yeah. how that bends or distorts or does whatever it does. That tells you a lot of things about slew, about transient. Uh, it actually, in some ways, tells you more about the transients than the impulse response does. It tells you a lot of things. Um, but how that square wave bends and how the top is straight or not straight or what non-linearities are there tell you a lot about the impulse uh, and transient response of the headphone. Mm -hmm. um, but CSDs to me are really useful because they give me an overview of the frequency response, which is not merely here's what the level is at a given frequency, because there's a lot of problems with that, right? The relative sensitivity of the headphone, the relative sensitivity and impedance of the amplifier or output device that you're using, right? Those are all huge interactions, right? If you're using high output impedance tube amplifier, we know this in headphones, you'll totally change the frequency response of the headphone. However, a CSD will, may show you that same frequency response based on impedance, but it will also show you ringing and decay, right? Mm -hmm. So, so um, a good example of this is the ortho wall, as people have termed yeah. it, right? That yeah. four kilohertz or 4,500 hertz ringing that a lot of orthodynamic headphones have because it's the resonant frequency of the diaphragm, I think is the going understanding of it. Um, we actually still don't have a great understanding of exactly what it is, but it's like a resonance in the diaphragms. And that 4K thing doesn't show up at all in in, audio, in uh, any headphone uh, that's orthodynamic in the frequency response plots. It only shows up in the CSD. Right. But I know people who can hear that, not as an actual ringing like it's audible, but they put them on and they're like, oh, this like give me headaches or like, why do these sound so weird or like right. a fatigue? So there's there. a correlation there with some other and part I think of the experience. A, yeah, yeah, because our ears are very sensitive. And one thing about yeah. measurements is we don't we don't have good measurements yet. We don't even know yeah. what, how the measurements that we have correlate to what our ears hear in a particularly sophisticated way. You would need someone, not even Harman has the resources to do that. You would need someone like Apple or Amazon yeah. Yeah. to spend billions and billions of dollars studying the ear and studying how the ear and the brain interpret and putting, you know, 
neurological, you know, pins and things and, and MRI machines all over someone's brain while they're listening to headphones to even begin to understand how the ear interprets what it's hearing and how to create a good set of audio suite measurements. So we have mm -hmm. a very, very crude understanding of measurements. And we're not even sure that our measurements are the right thing. They're just what yeah. our analyzers happen to be able to measure, right? So that's always been my criticism of ASR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, and the thing is, if you're happy with a topping D30 and a, you know, whatever, like, fine, great. Yeah. You know, we always say like, hello, welcome to HeadFire. Sorry about your wallet, right? <laughs> so if that makes you happy and you're a very yeah. cerebral person like that, that's totally fine. I have no problem with that. But for me, I also have to listen to stuff. And the pro audio world, which I am deeply immersed in, is kind of interesting because there are just as many, you know, audiophiles and nerds as there are in hi-fi. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't sound good or it sounds like sterile and cold and you need to make a record that sounds warm and vibey, you're going to buy the gear that makes it sound warm and vibey. You don't care how it measures. Sure, right? yeah. Um, it's the sonic result that is, and we've all had those moments in pro audio where it's like, we know exactly what our EQ sounds like. We crank it up at 800 Hertz. Like, yeah, it sounds awesome. You look down and it's all in bypass and you're like, God damn it. <laughs> like, we've all been there. Yeah, we've yeah. all failed double blind tests. Like yeah, it, we've all been there, you know, even the top, top, top guys, like some of the most incredible engineers and mastering guys that I know are like, oh yeah, I was like totally sure that I was boosting at like 4k and it was sounding awesome. And I looked down and my EQ was just off. <laughs> yeah, you I'm convince yourself that it's better because you did something. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but to me, the CSD plots are really, really interesting because they reveal those resonances. Like sometimes you hear a headphone and you're like, the frequency response is good, but there's like something annoying about it or it's real fatiguing after a while. Or like mm -hmm. it sounds like like the, the imaging isn't very accurate or the sound stage isn't good, or it's like really small or it's really huge sounding, or like mm -hmm. there's a sense of spaciousness to it that I don't get with another headphone that has a similar frequency response. Why is that? Right. A lot of those things are things I'm not going to say you can tell based on the CSDs, but they're things that can give you hints as to why that might be in the CSD, right. right? Decay and ringing. A great example of this is if you have any recordings that have like really clearly recorded triangles or bells or like high frequency, things like that, there's, um, there's an eighth blackboard recording called hand eye and the first there's a i think it's called pulse or something like that. It's the third or fourth track and there is a bell that was recorded with a with an aea ribbon mic that is so crystal clear it decays for like 30 seconds and it's just that there's like almost nothing going on around it yeah that is one of the easiest ways to tell if a headphone is distorting or not decaying properly or there's funky stuff going on and there's a lot of headphones even some very good ones you know that you'll hear and it's like the bell tail will go like or there's like funny yeah. little noises or like distortions or crackly stuff yeah. um, really, really way low when you crank it up loud. And it's like, ah, oh, that, you know, that funny little wrinkle that you see in the CSD that could be related to that. And so yeah. for me, it's again, we're shooting in the blind with measure, we're shooting in the dark with measurements, but for, you know, the blind leading the blind to me, the CSD is actually very useful because it tells us all those things that are, we tend to assume are, are qualitative. Like, yeah. Why does the headphone feel fatiguing even though it doesn't have too much treble? My ears still hurt after I listen to it, right? Or like, why does it seem like the presentation of instruments or reverb is not like good in a way that, you know, it doesn't decay in a long, smooth way or, you know, just things like that. So it's like small yeah. things that, um, or it's, like there's a lot of 500 hertz on this headphone, but there's no like punch yeah. to anything there. Yeah, that's like, actually another really common one. Like, like you know, Hi-Fi Man Aria measures really well in the bass, like really mm -hmm. well extended, almost yeah. like a little little bit of a boost there too. But when you listen to it, it doesn't it doesn't sound like it's it like, has the, the punch, right? And yeah. actually I was even measuring it with in-ear microphones to see if it was like a unique coupling effect. And it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Like even with in-ear mics on my own 
head, it, it still had the same base response. Yeah. So it was interesting. Um, actually, uh, just stepping back to the CSD topic, um, it's interesting to hear your perspective on this because, you know, there, there are so many people who read the stuff from Floyd Tool and go, wait, so if we fix something in the frequency response domain, then it should also fix it in the time domain because headphones are supposed to be minimum phase devices and generally be proportional. But I always thought that that was, I mean, he wrote that a long time ago. And I always thought that, you know, maybe there's there's more to it than that now when we have different headphone types with different transducer types like planar magnetics where they do have something like the ortho wall and whatnot, right? Where back then all he's looking at really is like HD6 whatever. Um, yeah. And it was not, you know, it, 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 he was, uh, there weren't as many variables to, you know, to, to look at. And, um, and so I, I wonder if now, if the same investigation was done, if the conclusion would be the same. Um, because, again, I, mean, I was just talking to a bunch of people about this, and, and it seems like, um, you know, the, the consensus is that, that we, we just don't know. <laughs> like there's, it, it looks compelling, and, it, and it, it, we want it to be compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's, you know, there's information, on, you know, pointing both ways on this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, actually, I, I don't know if you've read uh, Chocomel's uh, big thing on, um, on, I think he just got it posted on his LinkedIn. Um, but it basically goes into the subject where, you know, there's, it, it tries to investigate, you know, the, the merits of evaluating CSD for the way that we, you know, that we are. And then also, I mean, just things that, that it might show up in the time domain information, but there's still question marks about at what threshold those things are audible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I'm inclined to agree with that, the, your assessment there, that it's, it's the, the measurements that we have right now, we, we are shooting in the dark <laughs> in a lot of cases. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, so I actually, before I ever worked for any hi-fi companies, I actually used to work uh, doing some psychoacoustics research for yeah. um, people who made, this is actually going to mention microphones for sonar. And essentially what we were doing was um, working on uh, space mapping using sonar and, and the microphones were specifically used. One of the industrial applications was um, basically making sure that cargo ships don't crash into whales. Right. Right. Um, which is kind of sounds funny, but it's a big problem. Right? I imagine. Yeah. And so we were doing a lot of interesting analysis of like how, um, you know, how sound is, you know, moves through space and how it's portrayed by the ear. Cause the ear of a whale is, you know, surprisingly relatively similar in terms of the basic functioning of the, of the human ear. Um, and one of the interesting things is, you know, uh, t- timing and timing are not always the same thing, right? Sometimes when we talk about time delay or group delay in oh, yeah. like the digital realm, it's not the same thing as acoustic timing, right? Mm-hmm. Those are actually, they're the same word, but they're different things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not always equal. Um, and I think part of the other thing too is like, uh, a sign sweep in FR or in the CSD is a sign sweep. It's not a complex musical signal. Musical signals are incredibly sophisticated and difficult to, it's difficult to understand how a transducer interacts with them because it's very different than how they interact with test tones. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the test tone isn't a gospel, right? It gives us some information, but we're still kind of, it's still guesswork. And also, you know, a CSD and the FR, they go hand in hand. So this is something I think about with relation to what you just said. It's like, it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. So you can have a headphone that seems to have a really, really good FR, but then it sounds overdamped and you look at the CSDs and it's all like ultra hyper short and you're like, wow, there's like no energy at 500 or 1K sure. and it sounds yeah. dry, right? Yeah. Um, and for me, 
this was actually something interesting I realized in talking to some people in the headphone realm is there's two basic um, perspectives on this. One is you can damp out the resonance. And then the other is you can try and design a driver in an enclosure, which have a relatively accurate frequency response with minimal damping. Mm-hmm. And the reason you might want to damp out the resonance is to get a good frequency response, right? Yep. Uh, and this is the approach that someone like Dan Clark Audio takes, yep. right? Yep. Where he has very heavily damped drivers and the frequency responses are great. Sometimes the more qualitative perceptual elements are like, it can be a little dry, right? With some amplifiers or things like that. And I love his headphones, so I have nothing against that mm-hmm. approach. And then you can also listen to some headphones and it's like, wow, they have massive dynamics, but the frequency response is not that great. You look inside, there's not a lot of damping there, right? So there's ups and downs to both of them, right? Do you want to kill your dynamics or do you want to, maybe not kill your dynamics, but do you want to sacrifice some dynamics for (laughs) FR or do you want to, you know, have better dynamics, but you're going to have a harder time getting frequency response correct, you know? Um, It seems more difficult with planars as well. It is more difficult with planars because they are, um, I don't want to say less well understood, but there's been less research done on them than on, uh, cone drivers, and they also have a much more complex um, dispersion pattern because, despite being a planar wavefront, um, you still have nonlinearities in the driver. And when a cone driver flexes yeah. and has a breakup mode where the the different parts of the driver are moving in opposite, you know, directions and create phase cancellation, a planar driver because it's a mylar film flexes slightly, right? And now all of a sudden, those out of phase portions are way more complicated and difficult to deal with, and it's 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 more complicated, you know, and they also just behave differently. Right. And have yeah, different, yeah. you know, if you ever heard magna pans, they don't have much dynamics at all because they're not pressurizing the space that much. So, right. you know, ups and downs, every company has a different approach to solving these problems. In my experience, talking to all the, you know, hi-fi companies, these are the things that people think about a lot, like Dan and Sankar and like all these people, like they think about them a lot intensely. And you may not agree with their specific approach, but like, this is something that like people think of that people do really, you know, yeah. try to address. Um, it's not like they're unaware. <laughs> yeah, no, they're not unaware. They're certainly, they're very aware of like how yeah. their stuff sounds, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think to speak to your point though, like timing in the sense that like, yes, a headphone is a minimum phase device is like, yes, but also it's more complex than that. And I mm-hmm. think that, um, I think that for me, right. One of the interesting parts of the headphone hobby now is that like the new high resolution frontier is gaming and games have a lot of spatial audio built into them already and so what you're trying to do then with gaming is not actually design all this dsp and all this stuff but actually have a less processed headphone that acoustically couples and has spatial accuracy right um and and maybe you know something that takes into account how different you know because with a headphone you have one driver generally right but that one driver is going to have different portions of the driver that are more or less accurate at different frequencies, right? The, like the area of a cone driver, yeah. right? Different parts of it are going to be more bass or treble heavy, depending on which parts they are. And they're right next to your ear, right? And your ear is a very complex system. So like, you know, why has somebody not come up with something that kind of directs those different frequencies, different parts of the ear, for example, right? This is very complicated stuff. Um, and I think is, is to, to me is kind of something that, um, I'm interested in seeing because at this point, I feel that we have somewhat, the industry is starting to get somewhat of a handle on like what a good average frequency response curve is. Not everyone's going to hit exactly, but they're kind of around it at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, many of them. And at now, least, uh, above 1k, I think there's at least above 1k. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now we're looking at something which is much more complex, which is how does our ear actually 
take that in that information and create localization cues or sound cues or or like you know things like that and this is assuming that you have like good fr yeah and i think for for what i've noticed is and this this is kind of bringing it back to the 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 o'toole paper is that if you have good frequency response you're going to tend the things that make good frequency response are going to tend to put other things in a headphones performance in line Right. And I think that was so we were talking before the live stream started about how Sean Olive has the Harmon curve, which he derived from listeners. Yeah. Right. But there's another curve which looks very similar to the Harmon curve, not exactly, but similar, which is derived from the average of recordings over the last 40 years, say. Do you remember and, what the name of that uh, that other curve is? Um, I don't know if it's public, actually. Oh, okay. This was in discussion. I, I just with, I, um, I know that there was also the, the, the Fleischmann research, which was, yes, there was also Fleischmann similar research. Yeah. Uh, similar what's to what's the other curves name? Uh, the T-list the curve, I think. No. Yes. Yeah, there is a no, T-list. No, 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 no he's I, kidding. He's kidding. From the, that's the Indian YouTube channel. Um, but there is a... Oh, no, he's talking about he's talking about Taryn. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is though uh, the Fletcher Munson curves, right? Yes, which is something equal, that almost yeah. nobody talks about either. Is equal loudness yeah. curves, um, and I think you know if you look between all these, there are some big similarities between them. And the things again that you're going to get at you know say 85 dB or 80 dB average listening levels between average recordings from an average listener preference are going to tend to narrow you in on a target curve, which is. Uh, if you design a headphone well and take care of you know, distortion and acoustic design and all that kind of stuff you have to hear, is going to tend to get towards that kind of curve. I've also heard the theory that people say, like, if you have a very flat frequency response at the outer ear, that's going to translate into something that looks like the Harman curve on the inner ear. I don't know if that's necessarily true or not. I've heard that theory espoused. Um, but I think essentially, you know, the things that you have to do to design a good headphone frequency response-wise are going to tend to get yep. you in the direction of um, you know, because if you have enough at 3K, right, Harm, the big thing about Harman that was shocking to all of us when it came out was like, there's a freaking huge bump at 3K. Like, why is there such a huge bump? But then you listen to it and it works. I'm mm -hmm. like, it, it works, you know, and it makes things present in, mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, having that range more recessed doesn't. Actually, um, on that subject, I mean, there's a lot of people who see that and and they've heard something that gets close to, you know, that kind of energy in the ear game. And they think to themselves, "Wait, this doesn't sound great at all because it's it's you know shouty or whatever else." Not realizing that the the issue with that is that the rest of the frequency response is not in balance with where that three K energy is, right? Yeah. So it's not just about the level of the three K; it's about everything else, you know, sort of above in it. relation. Yeah, 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 yeah in, in relation, relation to, yeah. to itself, and and you know, and in relation to again the equal loudness curve, because you, if you crank stuff up and listen to metal yeah. at like one hundred and four dB. Like you're gonna have a very different taste in gear than someone who listens to classical music at like 78 dB. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and this is one thing that I always try to you know when I was reviewing, I did talk about this a little bit. Like I am very constant in my listening levels. I have a very constant listening level. I tend to check with uh, microphones and decibel meters, like where are my listening levels, yeah. and to try and match them at different frequencies across different headphones, so that I can try and be as consistent as I can. The brain is always gonna fool itself, but yeah exactly right it's it, <laughs> the 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 an spl meter is like the most useful yeah. thing you can have um when you're listening to try and just check yourself right yeah um well and also like like i've realized that like when i'm i, I mainly use that for being able to plot accurate distortion measurements mm -hmm. um because uh my understanding is that like if you're not if you're not spl calibrated then it, they're sort of meaningless right because it could be yeah. anywhere but yeah um the other thing i've noticed is like i i'd calibrate that for you know 
well say say i play a test tone that i know is at around like 84 db mm-hmm. when i listen to music that's not at 84 db that's way lower and but it can depend on the music right it can depend on the recording so yeah and and again music dynamic signals complex yeah, yeah. even very simple music is very hard for us to analyze and it's very hard for it to be understood by yeah. even sophisticated ai and and analyzer you know readouts um yeah so there's still a lot we haven't solved in that department definitely definitely um i guess we should talk a little bit about odyssey hey <laughs> i know we've been going for a bit. Sure. we should yeah, we, we, we talk should talk about, about odyssey or we could we could dive into the chat i wanted to actually also just say tyler how's it going man <laughs> he's uh he's he's moderating he's the chat for it yeah for anybody yeah. who's unaware the chat <laughs> is super active i've been glancing over at it yeah awesome chat yeah should yeah. we should we dive into the chat or or how, how you just feeling? having fun yeah yeah they're goofing off it looks like it's a good time yeah. um um i know you had uh you had sort of a cutoff time at around noon um um i actually can go until uh i have something at one o'clock okay but i'm free be- anytime before then so we can okay. keep going okay so yeah um, um so with the with the odyssey stuff um i i, I guess i mean how much are you sort of involved in like the, uh, given your you know, experience reviewing headphones, do they ever come to you and say like, hey, you know, what do you think of this? Or, you know, what do you think of this prototype? Or what do you think of this tuning? Like, is there any of that kind of back and forth? Um, so I'm still relatively new at the company. So I'm still kind of sorting that. And then obviously with, you know, COVID being a thing, right? Trips to HQ totally. are yeah. as infrequent as possible. <laughs> um, we're trying to be safe about that, but yeah, they do, you know, Sankar will come to me. He's like, all right, put your reviewer hat on. Yeah. What do you think of this product? And I'll be like, okay, well, you know, maybe the build is plasticky. It needs to be better. Or maybe, you know, the sound is a little funky here. Or I, I, w- I could use a little more here, or a little less there, or, you know, the packaging is kind of hard to take apart. You should make it easier to open up or, you know, just small things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is feedback there. I would say um, there's a couple of like hardcore audio files on the team. You know, uh, everyone is, you know, almost everyone on the team is a gamer or uh, into pro music or something like something of that kind in a band, something like that. Yeah. Um, but of the like, I would say really dedicated hardcore audio files, so like have stereo systems, listen to headphones a lot, all that kind of stuff. I'm kind of part of a core group of, of audio files on the team. Um, and we do get, you know, we do give our feedback on the sound and we work with um, Dr. C, our, you know, chief technical officer uh, and give him feedback and, and give the dev team feedback and things like that um, about frequency response about our listening experience about, you know, does this product, you know, is it comfortable on the head, stuff like that. So it's, it's a group effort, but I would say there's definitely, um, they do come to me, especially when they're asking about like, Hey, we've got a product that's an X category. Like who are some reviewers that would be good? And, you know, I'll be like, okay, well, you know, critical and, you know, the headphones.com guys and, you know, whoever, like send them to these guys. I think they would be interested in this category of product or whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, and also like, Hey, I know, you know, like Steve Guttenberg's probably not going to like this product cause he doesn't really do these, you know, this kind of product or like, send him a Penrose. This kind of, yeah, right. <laughs> like it's like, uh, are we going to send Steve a Penrose? I mean, I, I, Steve's, I, I, you know, we could just, if he yeah. wants one i he's, i doubt uh, he does but he's secretly really into call of duty so he's, he's no, secretly, just kidding, like, just he's secretly <laughs> yeah he's it's the secret identity it's iron yeah. he's the best warzone player in the world yeah yeah exactly. um, but uh <laughs> but uh he has some he's crazy he's hilarious actually yeah, I don't yeah. Think people realize how funny he is um but uh yeah no so there's certain you know things like that the last for feedback especially related to what kinds of products, you know, which reviewers like, or what I think if I were a reviewer and I was to give feedback on this product. Um, so yeah, 
that is a part of our process so far. Stuff that makes sense um, for the given, you know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, and you know. I mean, you guys are now, I mean, both feet in on the on the gaming stuff, as you're we saying. We are. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's there's a lot going on in that space, and it's. Um, I mean, that could be someone who you could have two or three of me just in terms of the social and the Twitch and the yeah. video making all that kind of, and, and coordinating with streamers and all that kind of stuff. You could have like three of my position and they could just do gaming and we would probably still need more people to do it because it's such a huge market yeah, compared yeah. to, I mean, even music industry, our music industry side is like way bigger even than the hi-fi side and the, the gaming side absolutely dwarfs even yeah. the, you yeah. know, even the bedroom producer market is dwarfed by the gaming side of things. So it's, it's interesting for us as still a small company because um, we yeah. are still, you know, small, I don't think uh, 20 full-time employees max, probably less, like 17 or 16. So, so but um, with, with the, the, I guess, the dive into the gaming side of things, um, I mean, you guys have the Mobius, the Penrose, and now the HyperX, well, before the Penrose, but the HyperX. Um, yeah, the Cloud Orbit. Cloud, yeah. And then um, also the GX. And the GX, yeah. Yeah. So there seems to be, there's, there's several different approaches to, you know, in, in those, obviously the Penrose is the newest one. Um, and that's, you know, the low latency, uh, I guess, is, is it, is it correct to say that it's kind of like a low latency Mobius? Um, essentially. Yeah. So the, uh, the Mobius, we get a lot of questions about this too, the difference between Mobius and Penrose. Mm -hmm. And essentially, right, the Mobius is uh, designed to do surround sound and, and the DSP in the headset, right? Yeah, head tracking um, actually, all the rest of that. Yeah, the head tracking, all that stuff. Um, and head gestures, which I think they added recently, which has been actually kind of an interesting conversation mm -hmm. with the disabled gaming community. Interesting. Um, because you can use the head, uh, you can uh, uh, independently assign those head gestures. And so it's become, we've actually gotten a small market of folks who use it to enhance uh, their ability to play games. That's with, really interesting. You know, customized controllers. That. Yeah, so that's, that's really a pretty cool. cool angle. I would like to do a piece about that because I think it's a really interesting story. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the whole story behind it, but I've been told a little bit and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of actually quite cool and, and somewhat heartwarming, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but the, um, yeah, so the Penrose is, you know, obviously very similar form factor, the same form factor as Mobius um, and uh, you know, similar drivers and things like that. It just doesn't have all of the DSP in it. Um, and so that enables one, the latency issue to be addressed. So there's a lot lower latency. Um, which is a big thing for especially, you know, console gamers mm -hmm. uh, who I don't know if you've ever tried to use a Mobius on console, but you have to use it wired to get the latency low. I, and it still I, has I, yeah. a certain. I still need to get a console. That's where I'm at. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't have any of the new ones. I only, I have like an old PlayStation 3 and I think I have a PS4, but I don't use it that much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, um, but with Mobius, you know, you, you will always have a certain degree of latency because DSP just takes a number of samples of latency, right? Yeah. It's just. There's no way around that. Yeah, yeah. Um, wired, it's quick enough for most gaming. But if you're an FPS gamer who demands sub 20 millisecond latency, and 20 milliseconds is roughly, in most people's opinion, where picture and sound start to desync more yeah. latency than that is gonna. You're gonna notice a slight desync of the audio, and lower than that, generally, your brain shouldn't notice too much desync of audio for film, picture, and most gaming. Yeah. Um, so, it's um, something we, we. There was a lot of work done to get the latency real low on Penrose, low enough for FPS gaming. And, um, and wireless, and which is... And wireless, yeah. right, which is, again, non-trivial. It's it's a, a lot I mean, more difficult than it seems. I, I, I think I remember watching you play some Overwatch, and 
It, it was pretty good. I, I mean, I was actually really impressed at how well you were able to just sort of like talk about various different subjects while still winning. <laughs> yeah, that's so. <laughs> hard. That's a hard one. I've been a gamer. I mean, yeah. for a long time, I, I picked up my first video game controller. I was like nine months or yeah, 10 yeah. months old. And I was like fiddling <laughs> out with the, my dad's Sega and uh, yeah. which always annoyed him to no end. But um, but yeah, it's really hard to talk and game at the same time. <laughs> yep. I used to be um, I used to be a, a streamer for for you know, some competitive stuff and uh, there's always like, people asking stuff in in the chat and you're like yeah, yeah. how am I supposed to do and both these at the same time <laughs> trying to watch the chat trying to respond to the chat yeah, and yeah. not die is yeah, really yeah. hard <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so I had to practice that a lot I got in some practice because I, I used to do more streaming and video production and some you know yeah. voice acting and stuff like that so yeah. Um, so I have a little bit of experience with that, but it's, it's difficult. And the audio does help surprisingly, actually, you know, yeah. Yeah. sometimes I'll notice something in the game and you know, your, your ears are of the sensory organs that we have some of the most sensitive, yeah. um, yeah. you know, eyes are relatively easy to fool. They're not that accurate. Your sense of taste is pretty accurate. Um, but it's limited. You only have six or seven basic tastes, and then you have about 400,000 different smells that we mm -hmm, know of, mm -hmm. right? And touch is not that accurate at all, right? Like it's pretty, it's pretty blunt force instrument. But ears, our, our sense of hearing, is one of our most uh, accurate and also one of the most ingrained into our brain, right? The, yeah. the centers in our brain that process auditory information are very deeply wired and connected to our sensory modality centers for sound. And that's actually really unusual. There's an enormous amount of processing, first of all, compression and EQ and all that filtering that, go, that our ears do to the sound. Yeah. But it's also, it it's has got to a be shorter, <laughs> yeah, it has to be there, but it's got a shorter path to yeah. our, um, to our neurological centers than our eyeballs or our, our fingers do, that's interesting. which I, I think is quite that. interesting. Yeah. And that's our really sense cool. of our, our, our ears actually, there's two interesting things. Um, first is called autoacoustic emissions, which is our ears actually make sound as well. They make little tiny sounds in relation to what we hear in the environment and then EQ and change what we're hearing and getting sent to our brain based on their little test tones that they send out, which is really weird and fascinating. There's a whole it's like uh, sonar. section of it's like... it's a whole, it is. Yeah. It's like, it's like mini sonar. And there's a whole section of music actually that is based on these, that is kind of weird and kooky. Um, Crazy. But um, the other thing is that our ears are um, also connected to our sense of balance, right? People who have yeah, yeah. problems with their inner ear sometimes will have vertigo or like nausea yeah. a lot of the times and um, tinnitus or like, you know, the weird sonic attack things in Cuba. Um, it can give you migraines and, yeah, and yeah. if you throw up and, and all sorts of, like your ear is very connected to your brain it's, in a uh, weird way. I was talking to somebody else about this recently who, and he, he said, you know, our ears are actually really good measurement tools, which I, 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 I like to agree with. I mean, obviously not measurement in the sense of like, you know, visually representing data, but measurement as far as like being able to, you know, get an accurate picture of, you know, what it is that we're hearing. It's, the ears are, ears are fascinating in that sense. Um, just getting back to the, the gaming subject. Um, so there's the Penrose now, there's the Mobius and all those other ones, but then there's also the, the GX. And I wanted to ask sort of like, what's the, there seems to be two, two approaches here. One is let's do a lot, you know, the, uh, well, at least with the Mobius, it's, it's, you know, the, the head tracking, the 3d functionality mm -hmm. and, and all this. Um, I haven't tried the Penrose yet. Um, but, uh, the other side of it is, mm -hmm. um, let's have a, let's have just like a, a more regular over ear headphone in the GX where it's, you know, it doesn't have the, the, you know, um, all the digital stuff built into it. And it feels to me like there's at least for the, for the, you know, gaming audience, um, there it, 
yeah, there seems to be two sides of this and one follows one approach, one follows the other approach. And, you know, I've always been of the opinion, like way back when I was, you know, first getting into headphones that like I wanted to get away from all the electronics being in the headphone. And now it's kind of like going in the opposite direction of that, where, you know, a lot of the stuff is there is more uh, interesting ways of doing this stuff when you do have the 3D stuff and the and the head tracking stuff and whatever. And as we see it with the Apple AirPods Max as well, right? Where they're able to integrate that with the content that they're, you know, that they have. Um, and um, so, yeah, I wanted to get sort of your take on, on that, disti- uh, that distinction and on those two different ways of doing it. And, you know, going forward, do you see, you know, which directions do you see this going? Are we eventually just going to be using the, you know, is everything going to be spatial audio, 3D audio in, in games as well? Or is there still room for, let's say, leveling up in terms of that sort of like traditional mm-hmm. audiophile trajectory that just does a better job of, um, you know, speakers and an amplifier and that kind of thing, two channel? Or not two channel, but like yeah, you get what I mean. Like yeah, left and yeah, right. Two, yeah, two, well, yeah. there's two channel, right? Speakers. Yes, are, that too, know, obviously. St- st- stereo, <laughs> stereo. Yeah, like but... headphones are two channel. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so uh, I will say that I think you know I think, and I'm still learning the product line because I'm still relatively new at Odyssey. So, mm-hmm. um, my perception of it is that there is kind of a segmentation of use case. Um, which is that you know if you want wireless and you want the best console functionality, you're going to get a Penrose, and that's kind of excuse me what that's going to be for. Um, and we've also had a lot of streamers who say that they like the Penrose mm-hmm. um, and you know the mix amp functionality and things like that. The Mobius is kind of like if you want the tech and you want the I actually love the Mobius for watching movies. Um, if I don't want to bug you know my roommate or things like that, they're great for watching movies with because I can get a surround sound experience. And I don't have to have our surround sound stereo set up, right? right. So in situations which you, where you don't have that spatialization, that's a really cool thing to have. Mm-hmm. The GX to me is perhaps the most forward thinking in a way that may seem strange because I personally think that the future of audio in say games and visual content, VR and things like that is going to be, is just two channel headphones, just basic two channel headphones. And the DSP processing will be offloaded onto the computer or the game designers, right? Yeah. Who, who can integrate it in a much deeper way than DSP built into a headphone with a tiny little amp and a bunch of chips and things like that. Yeah. It adds expense and cost. You have to have batteries and all this other stuff, right? And there are places for that. Again, you know, if you don't have a home theater setup and you want to have 7.1 surround sound, uh, the Mobius are fantastic for that. And we've, again, I've, I've uh, seen partners of ours at pixel logic who do a lot of netflix sound mixing and they use the mobius for qc checking actually so there's a uh, post industry uh, application for that hmm. um i think in gaming to me you know i am always like a less dsp is more kind of person in my just my personal preference i i wouldn't say i'm super purist but i tend towards a little more purist in my audiophile tendencies um just because tyler I, does too <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to not use EQ as much, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to like things that sound good as they are. Um, and I tend to like to try and have, you know, as little processing as I can. Mm-hmm. That said, I have heard sound in games that is uh, just unbelievable. Like unbelievably beyond anything but the absolute best audio file recordings I, I have. And it's, I don't mean like Diana Krall. I mean like recordings that really get me. Um, so I you're was talking playing, like the Battlefield games or something like that? or I was playing Assassin's Creed oh, okay. Origins, actually. This was a year or two ago. And I had a pair. I got them for my mom 
Um, but I stole them. <laughs> I had a pair of Sennheiser wireless. It was just the cheap ones. It was like RS one fifties or something like sure, that or one yeah. sixties or something. I remember Wasn't, that, yeah. 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 They were cool headphones. They weren't expensive. They weren't, you know, they sound fine. Um, but I had those on and I remember playing Assassin's Creed origins and I was like, just my jaw hit the floor because hmm. the sound in that game is unbelievable. I remember hearing I had put a different costume on and Bayek had a mask on his face. And as I rounded the corner on a building, I could hear him talking to another NPC and I could hear his voice changing as he had them. His voice was like muffled through the mask. And I could hear as he walked around the corner, his voice bouncing off the other buildings and like being muffled by the corner. Cause my camera was still right. on the side of the building. And like, I could hear his voice moving and being still muffled as he was like moving around the environment, how it was bouncing around and changing when he entered the room, like totally seamlessly, like the reverb seamlessly changed into a totally different room. And it was like the attention to detail and sound there was unbelievable. And the spatialization of it too was like, I would hear, you know, somebody riding up on a camel behind you. And I was like, whoa, it was truly, <laughs> it was like the ear was tricked, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I spent all day listening to, you know, tiny little things and mixes and sound and working on game audio and stuff like that. And I, my ears were tricked by a basic pair of Sennheiser wireless and, you know, just plugged right into my PlayStation. Yeah. Um, the flip side though game... is that there's there's also some games out there that have really atrocious, game, oh, yeah. you know, audio. Yeah. And I think one of the things that people would want is like, if if there's a, a way to make it so that like the headphones that you're using make it so that the badness of game audio when it is bad is right. not as bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is and that's and that's something that I think. Um, so two two things. One, obviously, there's something like Mobius does have a place with that, where it yeah. can take a game that sounds really bad, put on the warm preset, turn on all the spatial stuff, yeah. and all of a sudden you have a much more pleasant experience. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It might not be as best as the very best, you know, really great games that are out there, but like it's going to sound a lot more pleasant, right? Yeah. Um, and the problem, of course, has always been access, right? So the indie games are, you know, stripped or, or, or strapped for... Um, you know, resources with, with regards totally. to how to do this, right? Now with the Tempest engine on PlayStation and Unity having a lot more, um, Unity and Wise have a lot more support for binaural audio and Dolby and, you know, other spatialization schemes, sound particles, um, which is now a plugin. I think you can just use it as a, as a plugin for um, Wise is super, super cool and allows for developers who are much more indie to do really high levels of sound design and to do really uh, sophisticated and awesome audio for their games and music for their games. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, to me, right, that's almost emblematic of like you have the GX, which is at this very high price point, which is like AAA titles with great sound, like on a GX with a game that has a really good Dolby for headphones or really good sound mm -hmm. particles done or whatever spatialization, um, it's going to sound to me, I prefer the sound to even, you know, a Mobius or a Penrose. But that's, that's like the same would be true then also though for, for other high end, you know, like yeah, any high end, or whatever. Right. Yeah, any yeah. high end stereo headphone will yeah, work for yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, right. If you look at the Odyssey line, the GX are kind of like, I hate to say this cause it sounds a little snooty, but like Odyssey headphones are expensive. It's a, they've brought down the tech yeah. to a price point and made it lighter is, more comfortable yeah and made it lighter and more comfortable it's much much lighter and more comfortable yeah. they brought it down to a price point where it can play in the very high end of the gaming space mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um and you know lcd one is actually another one that i've gamed a little bit on and it works quite well um and and you can use any headphone you want that's that's I think to me, right, and if you look at VR implementations where, where some of the most complicated, you know, ambisonics audio is happening, that uh, system generally just uses two stereo headphones mm -hmm. and they do all the processing in the game engine or in the headset 
right, um, right. Uh, the Oculus. Yeah. Not the ear headset, the eye headset. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to me, that that is where the future of, I think, the highest resolution audio lies. I think there's still a place for doing it in, in the, the ear cups and having specific purposes. But but to me, um, yeah. as someone who does game audio occasionally, um, that's that's what I see the future of uh, is yeah. actually simpler, right? Is actually going back to just really high quality, low distortion, good frequency response yeah. uh, headphones for gaming that uh, that have good you know sound localization and then having really, really awesome sound mixing in games and, yeah. and putting that um, in the hands of the content creators, right? Right. So it's it's, it's funny because like we we did a, a live stream all about you know best headphones for gaming and stuff like that like a while ago, and um, I think the conclusion was the best headphones are ga- for gaming are are just good headphones. <laughs> you know, like yeah. every second, yeah. you past a certain point, like it's not about it's not as much about you know sound stage or whatever. I mean, it is to a certain degree about you know positional accuracy mm-hmm. for imaging or whatever else, but like good headphones that sound good for music will also sound good for for games yeah um so absolutely and also so another consideration with gaming too which you know of course a lot of the really hardcore headphone hobbyists are going to be listening for long periods of time but something that's consideration for gamers especially and this comes also from the music industry is they're gonna be wearing the headphones for a relatively much longer period of time yeah so Audiophiles are going to be listening for a couple hours to music, generally at lower to medium levels, sometimes loud, but they'll turn it up loud for like a song or two and then they'll turn it back down is what the listening habits tend to be. Mm-hmm. Um, music industry professionals tend to listen quite loud for like a chunk of time and then they'll take a break and do something else or they'll, you know, so they tend to turn the volume down. Yeah. You know, they'll listen loud for a longer chunk of time, but then they'll not listen for a period of time. Gamers will tend to listen at medium to loud levels for just a long time, just all day. Yeah. And yeah. so that is, you know, something that you have to take into consideration when you're designing headphones for that crowd, right? With e- again, with equal loudness curves and frequency response and things like that. And suddenly, you know, if you're listening to a headphone at an average of 90 to 98 dB all day long, hearing gunshots right next to your ear that are really loud. I don't know if you've seen it, but Escape from Tarkov and Warzone, yeah. the gunshot sound effects are mixed so freaking loud. They're yeah. super loud. Yeah. And in that case, like, Adding a 4K dip is probably going to save some of your hearing. You know, like <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that makes like, a certain amount of sense. <laughs> our ears are really sensitive to 4K. Yeah. If you don't want to have a big old notch there, like turn 4K down, you'll be able to listen all day. Yeah, to loud, you know, war so, zone that also then goes back to one, one of the things you're saying before, though, as well about like the target curves being being yes taken into consideration for what people prefer, but then also conversely taking into consideration what the recordings are and in the sense of the gaming stuff if it's if it's more prevalent that game audio has especially for like fps games and stuff like that has these types of features where there are loud gunshots that would typically fall within a certain you know frequency range to make that more i guess palatable and accessible for for people who are doing that for people who are specifically in that you know um environment constantly listening (laughs) Um, that's a really interesting approach um, I think it's also, again, that kind of Harman curve, you know, style of tuning or yeah. whatever, whatever style of tuning, whether it's equal loudness or Harman curve, whatever, that kind of basic, the basic good neutral-ish tuning is not something that is sacred that everything has to be exactly that because you don't want to design a headphone that sounds oh, yeah. exactly the same for gaming as for music, right? There's actually, um, and this is one of the interesting things I did a live stream last week where I was tuning the Penrose and I was just showing off how I make Penrose EQ presets for specific games. Yeah. One of the things I talked about a little bit was um, if I'm listening to music, 
you know, uh, the, the EQ profile I'm going to come up with for classical music versus EDM are going to be different, but also just the basic tuning of the headphone between music and between gaming are going to be different because in gaming, you can have even more mid range than that big three K bump. Yeah. And it's like, you can have movies and TV be a little bright and a little harsh actually. And they sound okay because those sounds aren't happening all the time. Right. Music yeah. is very constant. And even though it's dynamic, it's still more regular. Whereas, um, you know, if it's like a gunshot sound that happens and it jumps and you're like, wow, it's really loud, but it only happens once every five or 10 minutes. It's meant to be loud. A little bit more okay. <laughs> and it's meant to be a little more yeah, shocking, right? Yeah. And having more bass. I like more sub bass when I listen to uh, me, uh, movies and like games, mm -hmm. you know, because I like to feel that rumble. Like if I'm playing Skyrim and dragon stomping around, I want it to sound epic, you know? Yeah. Whereas yeah. like if I'm listening to music and I'm like, oh, cool, this is like, a, you know, Tchaikovsky's the symphony and the timpani just sounds like this massive ever-present rumble it's like that might be cool but it's maybe not appropriate to the program yeah right? nobody would want that if they were actually right. going to go to a you know live you know right. recording of it or something yeah right so session. that's something that I think about I, I don't know if that factors into our tuning process but I suspect it probably does yeah um you know the use case is important and and there will be slight variations in a centralized tuning uh based on those due to you know preference but also use case yeah so. For sure, for sure. Um, I figure we should probably get into the chat. Um, guys. Yeah, I see the chat's ultra active. Yeah, um, if you guys uh, have questions for uh, Grover, uh, Tyler, or myself, leave them in the chat and leave a question mark so we know where to look. Um, there's, I'm sure we've lost a, a, or missed a ton of them already. I know, um, I was trying to answer a few of them that yeah. I saw, but it was fast. Tyler, did you, uh, oh, you're muted, I think, Tyler. There was a couple questions. Oh. Most of them are pretty pretty standard. Somebody asked Rizal what games you played. Um, what games I played? Yeah. So I I was a uh, for a, a long time. I was a StarCraft II Grandmaster. I played that very very competitively um, to the point where I was playing against uh, Koreans and losing, <laughs> as one inevitably does. Um, and then I also uh, play uh, I play a lot of like competitive FPS stuff, but. Um, that not so much these days just because i haven't had the time um, but i used to be into yeah like cod and battlefield and stuff like that csgo um overwatch as well um and more recently it's been i've been having fun with warzone just because um it's it's easy to just get into and have a bit of fun with you know with friends and stuff um but yeah that's i mean that I, my my competitive <laughs> gaming hasn't really been something or it's not been something i've been doing the last little bit just because uh yeah not, not enough time to really invest which is also like i've i've been of two minds about this because on the one hand i'm like yeah i probably shouldn't really spend that much time you know, playing games when i should be working or something else but the other side of me is like it really does miss that a lot so um i guess i'm in the process of trying to find something that does pull me back in but haven't found it yet <laughs> but uh yeah i guess uh, grover what's your uh uh, I guess game of choice these days. What's my gaming life look like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I've been replaying a lot of like old corny RPGs on my PlayStation Three. Uh, but I've been I've been replaying some Elder Scrolls games and modding them and kind of goofing around with that. But um, yeah, hate someone mentioned Hades. I oh, Hades that, is awesome. Uh, quite yeah. a bit. Wonderful awesome. game. I love uh, all the games that that um, I'm blanking on the name of the studio. But they came out with yeah yeah uh, Bastion. Uh, mm -hmm. And they also came out with Transistor, and um, they came out with Super weird... Spy, the Spy yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. Super, super Giant Games is the one. Super that... Giant, yeah, yeah, Super Giant. And they came out with a um, uh, like a sport. It's like a sports fantasy magic game. Oh yeah, that... the basketball. The basketball thingy. thingy. Yeah. 
and I hadn't heard of that until a couple weeks ago, and it looks super interesting, and I'm I'm definitely going to play mm. that. Um, I've been playing uh, some Total War Warhammer. Oh yeah, uh, that's I I've put so many hours into that. <laughs> which to me, I used to be a GW nerd when I was a kid. You know, yeah. I went and hung out at the GW stores, and I did the thing with my dad and all that kind of stuff, right? So I know the I know the world well. Yeah. Um, and I've been a Total War fan for a long time since I was yeah. a kid. Yeah, me too. And to that. me, it feels like the evolution. <laughs> it's like this is what Total War is always meant to be. Is like, yeah, it's cool when like Roman legionaries yeah. and like you know Gaelic <laughs> barbarians are clashing, whatever. But like dragons stomping around and giant ogres and like fireballs yeah. flying around. It's like it feels like the most um, uh, satisfying use of the engine yeah. so far. I think they're gonna it's do like, a third one as well. Um, I'm excited. Yeah, for that I heard one. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else I've been playing? Uh, Overwatch, obviously, for you know. A lot of my gaming life has been the Odyssey streams lately, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've been busy with that. But um, yeah, I've been playing some Overwatch. Um, I was re I've been replaying my way slowly through the Halo Master Chief Collection, um, which is kind of fun because I never owned an Xbox, so I played the original games like at my cousin's house and things yeah. like that. But I never actually got to sit down by myself with a controller and like play through them um, one through three. Um, and then a lot of indie games. I've always been a big fan of things like Flower and Flow and Journey and you know games like that. Um, so I've been you know I always discover little things on on uh, Steam that I enjoy. Uh, and then I was replaying some Dragon Age Inquisition and um, a lot of uh, Baldur's Gate three actually. Oh, that's the new um, one, right? The new one. Yeah, that's supposed to be like yeah, Divinity Original Sin. Four. It's essentially. <laughs> like yeah it's essentially divinity 2 on steroids with some yeah. cosmetic makeovers and things like that i um, I, I love divinity it's great so i'm, I'm hyped for that thing, yeah the coolest thing to me about divinity is that you could i don't know if they can do this in the new Baldur's gate but i think you might be able to is that they had a mode where you could basically play dungeons and dragons in the game engine mm. um there was a game master who could you know ask you to gotcha. roll dice and your character you would make your character and you'd run around and the game master would basically create you know encounters and scenarios um for you cool and i always thought that was super super cool i saw uh i don't really follow critical role but i think matt mercer from critical role did a a, a demo of it or like a playthrough of it i was like that's super awesome i need to yeah need to get in that. so that's <laughs> kind of been it's been a lot of rpgs and, and that yep. kind of thing for me i haven't played as many fps games i used to be really good at them i used to be on the mm -hmm. semi-professional smash circuit and I used to be like a killer call of duty player and as anyone who's tuned into the Odyssey Twitch streams recently, <laughs> I'm like, not, I, oh yeah. God, I'm terrible now. Well, um, we, we have our, our resident, uh, you know, competitive gamer in uh, Chrono, who, uh, uh, who uh, yeah. he does, he's doing a lot of, you know, gaming headset reviews as well and stuff. And mm -hmm. he, uh, we, we, Tyler and I tried playing with him some, some Warzone a while ago, yeah. and, and it was, he, I mean, I guess we were trying to be a little bit more casual, just, you know, chat and have fun. And he's out there just like, you know, yeah. carrying Yeah, end us. of the game, it was like he had like 20 plus kills and yeah. it was stupid. Yeah, we were just like, we we're just like, uh, I'm not really doing anything here. Yeah, we were chatting yeah. and yeah. running around shooting things and yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, any other questions pop up in the meantime? Let's see. Um, game talk is boring. Just game talk. <laughs> uh, okay, um, here we go. Here's a question. Uh, or, well, okay, it's a, it's a controversial question. What is... Um, I guess uh, there. What is Odyssey's take, or I guess, yeah, maybe what's your take on uh, planar driver crinkles drama that have been going on lately? Um, not as significant. So I think he's referencing the. I'm not sure if you've seen some of the abyss drama that's happened on Reddit, where <laughs> somebody took apart an AB 1266, and there was. I think that's what he's referencing, right? Um, and the and the driver looks like it. The diaphragm looks like it's not um, well tensioned, um, but of course there. You know, 
there's so much you know background information uh, behind that as well did you do you have a, any sort of take on that or um i didn't see that teardown although i heard okay. about it uh i don't think i could tell the story but there's a funny drama story about abyss from many years ago um but uh i mean i've heard the abyss headphones i i always thought they sounded kind of cool they're sort of they're so different and yeah. like interesting and unusual um the frequency response is kind of interesting uh but the dynamics are crazy like i don't think anybody is ever going to argue that the bass on that headphone is on the on the full super... size big full size big 1266 yeah. Yeah, yeah the yeah, 1266 yeah. has like a such yeah, a cool bass presentation bass. that yeah i you've never i've never heard anything like it even on one you know k1000s or the my spheres or, or, or anything it's just so different and so cool I, yeah um, I, I don't know about the driver thing i so again i'm still relatively new at odyssey i know a little bit about some of our like secret sauce things and how the drivers are made and there's some very cool things that go on there that you know i didn't know about planar tech and um odyssey has like a ton of patents on just like some very fundamental really yeah uh like good way like just best practices on how to build planar drivers that um that are you know uh it's like they're quite cool they're quite innovative you know mm -hmm. um but uh the crinkly issue as i understand it is like you will have you know some crinkling when you put the headphones on sometimes that's the other kind of the tensioning thing yeah, right there's the pressure yeah, yeah, thing yeah. and they just crinkle um now in terms of like the crinkle being like an issue or like things like that i actually did, i haven't read that teardown i heard about it but i haven't read it so I, i'm afraid i can't really yeah i don't i don't think that that's a reference to planar crinkle i think it's more just that when the like tension the tension of the diaphragm when they took it apart looked like it was like it had ripples in it so I think oh. that's what this is in reference to. But uh, I, yeah, they, I don't know I enough. I know that yeah. Dan Clark claims that he has like a intentionally kind of like ribbon styled like. Mm, interesting. Per, um, not perforation, but it's like a accordion fold. Oh, yeah. No, that's the um, driver. I can't remember the uh, name of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a specific thing. Yeah. yeah um, so I always thought that is... was similar to like Odyssey's waveguides or something. It had it was meant to do a similar kind of thing. Um, well, there is a flow. The, that's the flow. Oh, that's the but, flow part. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. There, I've seen a. There was a diagram he yes, put out I, a couple I, years I, ago yeah. where it looks I like the that, diaphragm yeah. is. Now I don't know how you exactly do that because my understanding is like mylar is, you know, and other materials like that are like, you're supposed to like pull them tight. Yeah. But I also am not. I don't design planar drivers. Yeah. Like I have some understanding of how they work, but I'm not an expert on them, so I can't really. Oh, speak he calls it but V planar, isn't it? V planar. Yeah. 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 Um, and. Uh, you know, so there is a lot to, to get around this idea because you, you know, essentially have to have the driver, you know, secured or fastened somehow, and then it flexes in the middle when it goes in. Yeah. So everybody solves that differently. Odyssey has one way, Dan has another way. I'm sure JPS Labs has some way. Yeah. But they do it. I don't know what uh, their method is. I I do know that um, I've seen you know a lot of production facilities at this point for different planar drivers, and you know, and been given a little bit of a tour of the Odyssey HQ and tensioning is not as much of an issue now as it used to be mm -hmm. it used to be that tensioning was like a big thing in production consistency and it was very difficult to get it right and it wasn't you know yamaha had done it back in the 70s and fostex had done it back in the, the 80s but outside you know outside of that it was like it was a hard thing to get down but most of the major players i mean you'll always have some driver failures and some things like that but uh because planar is a little bit tricky to make but yeah driver tensioning at this point is pretty good from my understanding of it so mm -hmm. I didn't really answer your question. I no, know, no, but I, I, just, I, I didn't I, see yeah. the teardown, so I, I can't really yeah. speak to it, unfortunately. Uh, my, so, someone did it. Go ahead. I was just going to say that my, my take on it right now is that 
there's a lot of people who are going to see that and and go, oh, that doesn't look right. But most of those people probably haven't heard the headphones. So I, I, I have a hard time really, you know, I, I tend to agree with Grover that, that uh, you know, they do sound quite unique, the, the, the Abyss headphones. And, you know, super detailed and, and you know, I, the FR is maybe not for me, but but uh, mm. I, I never would imagine that this, you know, all the all the different indicators that people are pointing to, you know, whether it's the measured stuff with THD and whatever else, or this sort of driver tensioning thing. To, to, to me, like, when you listen to them, it doesn't sound like what any of those indicators might suggest, <laughs> that there yeah. is some sort of lack of resolution or dynamics or anything else like that, right? Yeah, so. I certainly don't hear that. Um... Yeah. I certainly don't hear that in the abyss, you know, it doesn't sound like obviously distorted or yeah. it sounds very high resolution and very, you know, fast and very punchy yeah. and, and very detailed. I think this is also the other interesting part, which, which I'm of course fascinated by, and I, I expect you guys probably are too, is cool. There's all this tech stuff and there's all these like technical things you can solve and all this cool stuff and graphs and all that kind of stuff. And then you have to make a leap to like, well, how does it sound? Because yeah. sometimes it's like, wow, this is super sophisticated and look all these cool stuff you did and it measures amazingly. And you listen to it and you're like, this doesn't really do it for me, you know? Yeah, I can think of a number of examples. <laughs> and yeah, same, same, you know? Yeah. And and then sometimes you're like, God, this thing kind of measures like trash and it's put together and it's sort of falling apart and it's like really kludgy. And then you listen to it and you're like, damn, sounds sexy. Like, yeah. It just sounds awesome. <laughs> like it sounds badass, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm always like really interested in that overlap of like, what makes a difference? What makes things sound good? I mean, always, there's always some amount of personal preference, but we've all had that experience. Where we're really excited to listen to something. It seems really cool. Yeah. And it's like, God, this sounds like crap. Like, what the <laughs> hell? You know, and yeah. I know these people are smart. I look at all the technical documents. The headphone is in order and it's well-made. And, and then you're just like, it doesn't sound good. What the yeah. heck? Like, what were they thinking? Yeah. And even beyond personal preference, I have to imagine that there is a lot of really complicated engineering stuff that, you know, you just, sometimes it doesn't always correlate to what we hear, you know? Yeah. And so it's like trying to figure out which problems are the right ones to solve is hard, right? Yeah. Cause there's a lot of problems to solve. There's a lot of things you could do. There's a lot of, there's infinite number of design choices. Um, and that's one thing I've always been interested in. And I'm trying to learn more about both Odyssey and other people's processes. Cause I'm interested in this. Yeah. It's like, what are the right design choices to make? And what do I hear in one speaker or one headphone that I think is interesting that I maybe can latch onto and try to apply to another one to see if it also holds or if I hear some commonality. So something, uh, for example, uh, I use ATC monitors in my studio. Uh, you can't see them, but they're right here behind my screen. Um, and they're ultra, ultra detailed. They're like some of the most detailed speakers you'll ever hear. You'll ever hear. And they use paper cones. They're just hmm. doped paper cones. There's nothing special. There's not, not graphite, metal, diamond, ceramic. There's sure. nothing special yeah. about them, right? Why are they so ultra hyper detailed, right? Um, and so that's something I've, you know, looked at ACT, ATC drivers and I've picked them apart and I've tried to figure out why they sound so detailed and, and things like that, you know, and it's like, okay, well, there's a, the phase amplitude and the, you know, frequency amplitude here, and there's the long coil gap here and, and the magnet structure. And, you know, what of that is making the difference? What of that is causing them to be ultra detailed and super flat? I don't know. I have some theories, but I don't know, yeah. you know, so yeah. I'm, you know, I'm always studying new speakers or new headphones to see like, is there things that I recognize in the measurements or in the design or, you know, in the wiring or anything like that, that I can like try and understand better and try and 
figure out yeah, why yeah. it sounds the way it sounds because that's still something that i think is ultra mysterious to a lot of us yeah certainly myself i i, I see a lot of people asking mm-hmm. about what your go-to um source gear would be um like oh, DAC yeah. and app and stuff like that but actually just before getting to that I, it's um <clears throat> i want to actually ask about um I don't think it's actually controversial, but um, Sean Olive has uh, commonly, uh, frequently, uh, on 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 Twitter, pointed out that it's it's not clear what resolution is, um, or like what you know these ideas about detail and what whatnot. You know, um, it basically says if you can you identify it, can you point to it? If you can't, then you know what are we talking about? Which I understand why he says that, because if it's not something that's easily measurable, like frequency response. Um, you know what is it and um and uh so the question the question i would have is do you think do you think he doesn't hear it because i i or do you think it's not not him specifically but like do you think there are people who just they don't hear anything beyond uh tonal balance or frequency response or is it is there more to it than that like everybody hears these differences um, so I, as an example, right, we take something that doesn't necessarily have a great frequency response or tonal balance, but has really good detail, really good you know, technical performance or whatever we want to call it. Are there going to be people out there who just they completely gloss over the latter part of that, the technical stuff, and they're only bothered, they're only, you know, thrown off, I guess, because of the, let's say, let's say suboptimal frequency response. Um, yes. And a good example of this uh, is... Uh, Jason Stoddard told mm. me a story one time about how he was at a... Uh, Jason Stoddard's from Shit Audio. Yeah, Jason Stoddard yeah. from Shit Audio. Yeah. Um, he told me a story. He was at a um, someone's house, and they were like, you got to hear my system. This is crazy, like $100,000, $200,000, whatever, crazy big audio stereo rig. And I think it was you know some huge Martin line arrays or something like that with these big tube amps and all this other stuff. And uh, the guy's sitting there listening, and he's, like, jamming out, and he's really into it. And Jason's sitting there like, God, this sounds awful. Like, what the heck? (laughs) And the dude is like, so what do you think? And he's like, I'm going to be real honest. Um, It sounds like 10% THD. Wow. And the dude was like, what? He's like, you need to check your tubes. I think when your tubes is, like, burnt out or broken or your phono stage has got a noisy gain stage, like, something is distorting, like, bad, hard, like, really, like, 10% THD. And the dude was like, oh my gosh. And he found out that one of his tubes was old and he replaced the tube and he fixed some caps and whatever. And he was like, how did you hear that? And Jason was like, dude, I sit in a lab all day listening to like transistors and audio parts. Like I know what 10% (laughs) THD sounds like. And your ear can be trained to hear an enormous enormous amount of detail about things. So um, when I was in music school, when I was at Oberlin, we had as part of our studio recording classes, uh, weekly ear training tests. And it was a bit like the... It's a custom. It's a custom program version. I think it's called uh, WebTet. You can actually still go and do it, and you know you can set up various tests to like frequency response. So to be like, all right, cool. The first week you're gonna have a quiz. We have to go into the studio and practice hearing a 12 dB, you know, cut at you know 64 hertz or 17, you know, 100 hertz or whatever, right? We just pick a random frequency, pick a cut or boost, and they would get smaller and smaller until by you know the end of the first semester you had to hear uh, a quarter of a dB boost or cut at any of um, 15 different frequencies between 60 and 12,000 hertz. Uh, and you had to tell whether it was a booster cut, how much it was by, what frequency it was at. And, you know, mm-hmm. you got one chance. Basically, you heard the original, you heard the, you know, 
the EQ to boosted cut version and you had you had to just it wasn't even multiple choice anymore you had to just type in what frequency what boost all that stuff very and specific so skills for they're very specific <laughs> skills right and then we also had to do other stuff it was like you have to tell how long a decay is like how many milliseconds mm. or how much pre-delay or how much compression is on this right. and they all got really granular and tight and you know I'm very grateful for that ear training because it's like I can put on a head, pair of headphones or I can sit down in front of a pair of speakers and I'm like there's something funky funky at yeah. 18a or like the bass is like you know two and a half db down at 30 hertz from you know what i would like to hear you know new, neutral line yeah. from the rest of the speech. like i can sit down i can hear that stuff or i can hear compression or i can hear you know the reverb changes or things like that because i did all that ear training so the point is not that i have ultra special hearing or i'm special the point is that you can train your ears very very specifically and our habits train our ears for what to listen to right mm -hmm. so the human ear is incredibly powerful um yeah. you know device but it is also, um, it depends on how we train it. And so I would say for me, you know, if Sean Olive doesn't hear that, then I believe him, you know, I would say generally people uh, hear, like I, I believe people when, when they say that they hear or don't hear what they hear. And if you yeah. don't hear stuff, like part of the audiophile hobby is kind of training our ears to hear certain things in music, right? Like, yeah. and oftentimes it's when we're kids. For me, it was my dad sitting down and trying to like play the stereo system for me, right? It was like, whether I was paying attention to it or not, it planted a seed, you know? and listening to that like there's little elements that pop out of mixes in hi-fi or like in headphones where we hear the bass a certain way like there's all things that we look for right and that's kind of what we habitually have trained ourselves whether we realize it or not to hear those are what we look for as, as audiophiles and those that's the joy it's like oh cool i heard the little thing pop out yeah. of a mix in a way i've never heard it before i heard that little you know cool element in this song that i love or i heard it with a particularly like just gorgeous tone to it that i i really liked the way it was presented and those are the like aha yeah. moments and and i think that to me is you know if Sean Olive doesn't get those from listening to music and he just likes to listen to test tones, that's cool. Well, that's his prerogative. I, I, I wouldn't, um, I want to put words into his mouth as, as yeah, far Yeah, no, as, no, yeah. I'm not, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean yeah. to, that didn't, that came off as aggressive. I didn't mean to be aggressive. I'm just saying like, for him, I think like he seems to be very like, uh, uh, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to say. He, mind is made up. Yeah, his mind <laughs> is made up, right? And he said that, Fidelity is frequency response. And that for him mm -hmm. is his version of fidelity. For me, I listen to some things and I'm like, man, the frequency response isn't what I want to hear, but there's a lot of detail going on here. Yeah, yeah. And that can be cool in its own way, right? Like, and when I was reviewing for inner fidelity, I always tried to take the tack of like, I can't tell you if you should buy this or not. And I'm, that's not my job. And I shouldn't be telling you if you should buy this or not. What I'm going to try to convey to you is if I think that this product is well-designed for a certain type of customer. So if you like a really warm, luscious sounding tube amp that's got a high output impedance that's gonna sound kind of warmer and fuzzier with a lot of headphones. Like this is a product that does that really well and is gonna suit you if you like that kind of, the kind of music that works with that well, right? Mm -hmm. And and to, to try and only send back products or not review products that like I felt had a design flaw. It was like, I don't think you guys intended this to be the, the way that it was. Cause some people like warm or some people like bright or some people like smiley face shaped EQs and that's okay. You know, especially in hi-fi, nobody's job is on the line. It's not like music production or like, you know, anything like that, where it's like your job could be on the line for something sounding right, bad, right? right? In hi-fi, it's a hobby. It's, it's, and so it <laughs> people are free to listen. People are free to people like stuff that to, sounds bad. Right, you're, 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 you're free to all love exactly the same sounding headphones. Yeah. Just you're yeah. Free, but you're free to listen to what you want to listen to. Yeah. Right? I've, had, I've got a whole pair of Bayer Dynamics and they're really bright. And sometimes for classical music, it actually sounds good, right? Um, so, you know, I'm not... I'm not opposed to people liking things that are maybe colored in certain ways, right? Yeah, I like yeah. vinyl. Vinyl lies to you. Vinyl is more <laughs> colored than digital, right? Yeah. Digital is more linear, but sometimes it sounds nicer and sometimes it, it brings me greater musical enjoyment. So that's fine. I'm okay with that coloration when I'm yeah. you know, listening to it for enjoyment. I'm the only person in the room or me and my friends or whatever, you know? 
that's our prerogative to do that. And no, like, what does it matter if someone on a forum says, well, your audio system is bad because I, you know, <laughs> so it doesn't measure perfectly yeah. in the, you know, whatever domain. Yeah. I'm like, who cares? I had fun listening to my, you know, my records or whatever last night. That's yeah. all that's all that's important in that uh, realm. Audio right? Quest Night Owl back there. So. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> if you enjoy it, that's fine, you know. Yeah. And I think the, the, the Harman curve and all that research is very important. It helps us understand how to hear and how to tune headphones better and how to get a good, you know, reference point. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very important for the industry. But at the end of the day, like, listen to what you want to listen to, you know, um, yeah, yeah. and and your ear is very trainable and also like bias and listening bias and perception are huge, right? You can you can get used to a lot of things like if you Absolutely. can listen to something that has yeah. massive boosts and no bass and you'll like you'll listen to it and you'll be like, yeah, this sounds all right. Like it has enough bass. I'm satisfied. And yeah. then you put on something that has a lot more bass and you're like, why is it so dark and muddy? Right? <laughs> and then you get used to that and you're like, yeah, this sounds all right. And then you put on the other headphone. And you're like, yeah. man, this is so bright and awful. Like your ear adjusts yeah. pretty in a pretty amazing way. Um, actually, you mentioned something that uh, I think is really interesting, but the idea of training your ear to listen for certain things. Uh, what I wonder this is totally speculative, but like I wonder if you know people who are training their ears specifically to listen to listen for um, frequency response related like fidelity, let's call it right that that's because that's what they're paying attention to how much does that bias it that's what i'm saying that's what i'm wondering oh, yeah. it's like because I have the same question as yeah <laughs> because i mean i think i think you're right like they're like you can i mean even just even just as i've you know been reviewing more and more stuff and you know been doing this more um you know regularly um the the things that i'm noticing as far as detail have have changed you know so uh I'm imagining, and also, I mean, all this stuff, it's like becoming so much more, e you know, so much easier to identify, you know, where various different issues show up in frequency response as well. So I can totally see a situation where somebody is just sitting down and listening specifically for frequency response and then missing all the other aspects of what's going on because they're just so focused on that one thing. Yeah. So it's interesting. It, interesting and it thing. is important. Frequency response is big. And in headphones, yeah. I would say frequency response is like 70 or 80% of the sound of a headphone. Yeah. Like it's a huge element of the sound of the headphone, even bigger than it is in speakers. Um, so it is important and I don't want to downplay the importance of that. But yeah. for me too, you know, once I went through that ear training, I've talked to other music professionals who are also audiophiles. Um, they're like, the frequency response needs to be sorted. You know, it, it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect. There's some room for variation, but it needs to be sorted out. Like it can't yeah. be lumpy and peaky and awful because that's just not going to be a fun listening experience mm -hmm. but that's something that because of our training because we work with audio every day we can sit down and we can just be like yeah it's like close enough or good or it's just lumpy and here's and like you know what i mean so it's like that is kind of the like resume right and if the resume <laughs> the speakers the transducer is really bad i'm like yeah. i'm not interested but if the resume is at least solid i'll give it a chance and i'll listen and i'm like cool like what am i hearing what are the elements you know how's the decay how's the timing how's the you know how's the speed of the driver how's the the punch is it dynamic is it you know fill the room or feel the fill the ear cup is it you know yeah what are all those other qualities that are intangibles uh or less tangibles maybe than frequency response but uh yeah, yeah. i mean the fr has to has to be there too yeah totally um, um I did want to get back to the to the DAC amp question. Uh, so if you could, yeah, what what are yeah, your so, go to? Um, so right now, what I'm running on in my desk, this is like my bedroom studio desk space. It's all my things. My PC is here. I have an RME Fireface UFX2, which is kind of my little control center. And then from that, I'm plugging in to a shit Gunier. Um, and then uh, the outputs from that run to an SPL Fonitor XE. 
Um, so that's my like typical headphone setup. Um, and then my uh, other setup that I have is a shit Bifrost 2 um, running into an old dark voice OTL, which has been modded um, a bit. It's got a better power supply, a better volume pot. The input tube has been switched out to a 6900 with an adapter. And then I think I have a 6 AS7 swap to an old tongue sole or something like that. Gotcha. Um, so that's my, I'm actually kind of a tube guy. I love tubes. I mean, um, I'm, I'm just getting into it now with the amps and sound Kenji yeah. right here. It's fantastic. Oh, that's a lovely amp. I reviewed so that good. for Interfidelity back in the day. Yeah. And um, I just um, had a pair of Justin's amps in my house for a while, the Zion's um, in oh, my yeah. stereo system. Incredible, like some of the most amazing yeah. amplifiers I've ever heard. Um, yeah. But that Kenzie is nice, especially with high, high Z headphones. Yeah, yeah. That's it is just gorgeous and rich and lush yeah. and like... <laughs> It's nice. He makes really nice stuff, and the build quality is impeccable. Yeah, um, yeah. So I like him. Really nice guy. Really, really, uh, really sweet. Easy to work with. Um, yeah, great, yeah. great gear. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm actually a bit of a tube head. Um, the SPL is my reference back from my inner fidelity days, and even earlier. So, and it's, I like it because just it's solid, uh, solid, <laughs> solid, solid state. Uh, it's just good. It, it's pretty. It gets out of the way, and. Um, it, it will drive, you know, almost everything. I wouldn't say it's like my favorite, you know, like, wow, I enjoy it all the time, but yeah. like it's reliable, it's easy. And it sounds similar with every headphone I plug it into. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a nice, you know, it's consistent cleansing. It's yeah. lemon sorbet for me, you know, <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> Getting back so, to uh, food analogies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my setup. Um, and then I have a bunch of speaker stuff too. I don't know if anyone's interested in that, but that's kind of my headphone setup. So yeah. Uh, and then, oh, if people are wondering about my headphones, I have piles of Odyssey headphones now. Um, some of them were mine, actually. Actually, I had a Mobius and an LCD one before I worked for Odyssey. Um, so I've had those for a long time. But then I've got GXs. I have a pair of 4Zs over here, and I'm actually using a pair of two closebacks to weigh down my microphone. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sennheiser microphone is too light. Wait, which closeback um, is that? It's just the two closed back. Oh, oh, LCD two um, closed. Okay. Yeah, LCD yeah. two closed back. Do I have any others? I have a couple pen roses lying around here for testing stuff. Pen, pen roses, um, pen rye. <laughs> and yeah, something. Uh, and then I have um, also a Dan Clark Audio Ether two. Um, I have a ZMF Autour. Um, oh, I love that headphone. That's yeah, one of my favorites. Lovely headphone. I, I, I hate myself for having sold it way back. <laughs> I sold yeah. it by the Verite, but it's yeah, an it, it's <laughs> a it's a. Um, uh, I think I have an open back Verite around here somewhere too. I love Zach too because I yeah. used to live in Chicago, and Zach and Bev are good friends of mine, and they're they're lovely. They make great headphones, and they're super super people. Um, yeah, so, just great people. So yeah, just, yeah, just good people to to know to work with. Um, yeah, we 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 were big ZMF fans as well. Yeah. They're so nice. They're yeah. like so nice. They always know the best restaurants in town during Canton. Oh, I'd love to go hang out. Trendy with them and fun, yeah. and they eat well. Let me tell you, if you ever go to a show and Zach and Bev invite you to go eat with them, yeah. always take them up on the offer because they'll find like the cool. It's yeah. never like super expensive, but it's always like the cool, quirky, like really fun place. I like, like, like you'll eat something you never expected to eat, and like yeah. they're awesome. So I I love them a lot. Yeah, it's um, great. Oh, somebody says, sorry, uh, a thousand ohm Odyssey when? <laughs> a thousand ohm Odyssey when? I hope so, because I, I like tubes. But um, yeah. I don't know. I know that they, this is, um, I haven't asked about this, but I know that they made some really high impedance headphones back in the day. They had like an, a, a thousand ohm, 2,500 ohm, and like, I think even a 10,000 ohm. Yeah, that's what Senko was telling me, yeah. Um, I think in a, like, 
part of it is like those don't really i don't think the market was really there for those um so they might have just been like our chief technical officers kind of like he does stuff sometimes that he's just like playing around having yeah. fun and kind of like i think the lcd 24 was kind of like just his personal pet project thing that he did and wanted to put out there um mm -hmm. now i would love to have those amps because otl amps work really well for headphones um, but without a transformer in the way and the tubes coupled directly to transducer, you need a higher impedance driver and mm -hmm. even two or 300 ohms is not really high enough. 600 is like a good minimum and 10,000 is even better. Right. Um, so I wish we made them. I think it's kind of expensive to make high Z planar drivers that are, you know, really high resolution and just not many that people buy them. Um, and then you have to have an, like a nice tube amp to run them with as well. So it's kind of, it's kind of something that I just, I think they determined that there wasn't a ton of market for it. Um, but I'll ask, we'll see. <laughs> I, um, I think, I mean, it's, it, that question I think is more sort of couched in this idea that, you know, even just talking with Sankar at, at CanGem last year, um, where, you know, the, the headphone, headphone manufacturers seem to be trying to make things more efficient, easier to drive yet in the audiophile world, all of us have amplifiers anyways. And so we're like, well, no, don't do that. <laughs> Make it make it more difficult to drive. Let us use our amplifiers, um, and then and then you know, so especially because these days there's so many amplifiers coming out that are extremely powerful that are inexpensive, as well. So we see kind of like almost like a bit of like I don't know industry dissonance going on because you know um, I guess I guess manufacturers are trying to speak to a wider audience, um, which makes perfect sense. But I think that's probably where one of the uh, pr probably where that question comes from. Um, yes. Sorry, Tyler. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was <laughs> exclaiming uh, at the the chat. I I forgot I was muted. I was going to say like the yeah, Zach and Bevan are awesome. They always have the best uh, recs for food and everything like that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, that was what I was mouthing. But oh, obviously was <laughs> muted. Yeah. Um, and then someone asks, uh, is that is that your puppy in the background? Yeah, she's she's yeah running around. <laughs> Need to care if she's okay. But uh, someone asked, uh, "Have you heard the Rad Zeros, Grover?" I have not. Uh, oh no, actually, take that back. I have heard them. Um, this was two or three years ago, I think. The uh, Can Jam SoCal, I want to say, um, down in Irvine. Um, I did hear them. They sounded uh, they sounded good. They kind of have a little that was bit back of when the, they were just being prototyped. They were just first came yeah. out. started. Yeah, they yeah. had just come out. Um, they have kind of uh, to my ears. They had sort of a similar house curve to odyssey with a few different yep. you know it was a little different the mid-range was maybe a little bit more dipped and and it was a slightly more v-shaped slightly more smiley face shaped um i may be misremembering but i think that's kind of what i recall but i thought they sounded good yeah um i don't really know anything about that because alex was way before my time at odyssey so i don't mm -hmm. i don't know what the drama there but yeah oh i don't know about that i was asked about the drama and like, um, i was more the yeah <laughs> I've, I've heard them i thought i thought they sounded uh, nice they're yeah. heavy for my tastes and i'm not usually not fussy about that i didn't think they were super comfy i thought the sound was solid. yeah the i think the initial runs were were heavier and a little heavier. bit clampier and then he's since he's tuned them now too he's yeah he's always well, yeah the tuning changed i think but then also the okay. i mean he can correct me but like the the he made them quite a bit more comfortable i think they're actually under 600 grams now uh um, oh, okay so they're they're actually quite a bit more more comfy and he's changed the pads as well to make them less less clampy too um, for the FR, what I've noticed is that yeah, yeah I think you're right. It's, a, it's actually a similar kind of sound to the to the Odyssey house sound. Um, so with a sort of relaxed, you know, ear game region. region. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but the 4K is relaxed. Yeah, a little bit. But um, 
but I mean, it's 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 funny because like there, are, I mean, there are some Odyssey headphones that I've that I've measured that are even more relaxed than that. But then you know, there's other ones like the LCD one that have a little bit more you know presence there. So it, yeah, it's uh, yeah, and I mean, so I and I I don't think I'll get in trouble for saying this. Saying this is Grover, not Odyssey <laughs> sure. employee. Sure. But um, you know, there is some people find that there's not enough 4K energy in Odyssey headphones. I don't know why. That's I don't know. If, I, I mean, I'm I'm. At this point, I'm pretty certain that everything that is done in the tuning of the headphones is yeah. like a very conscious decision. But oh, sorry, do you, and, sorry, you, you know, mean like the, to for the big over ear, like the yeah, full yeah, size yeah, LCDs? Like the big LCD size, yeah. you know, size. Um, yeah. I suspect again, this is just guesswork. Just me as Grover, not as an Odyssey employee yeah. or representative at all. Um, it's just less fatiguing to listen to for long periods of time. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's it's that's just something I suspect is. Uh, so actually, an interesting thing that I've noticed in my measurements of all the full-size Aussie headphones is that almost all of them seem to have that that cut at 4k but when you when you try and fill that in with eq it does not sound like it works like it sounds like you know it's it, it sounds more like there's something weird going on with the with the headphones coupling specifically on a measurement rig than it does actually like there's a like a, a 4k dip as extreme as what it might look like and um and this is yeah. why one of the reasons why like mm-hmm. i have some I'm, I'm starting to use more of the in-ear mics to make sure that you know the coupling that i get an accurate coupling but the problem with that mm-hmm. of course is that like nobody knows what headphones measured at the at, at the concha uh with unique penna should measure like there's no there's no standard for that <laughs> yeah, uh, plus it misses uh... all the other gain factors that are you know past the concha so um, yeah, so it, it's more just sort of like trying to in- see whether whether or not there's any sort of deviation between my pinna and like the the, the grosses pinna. But um, that just sort of what I've noticed as far as playing around with you know getting it to match a target. When it does match the target, it does not. It doesn't sound the way that other headphones that match the target do. So I think there is probably something unique going on there with with the measurement and the coupling and whatever else. Um, I don't know how much I can say about this, but I was shown something which was very interesting i'm not aware that any company making planar magnetic drivers today makes uh or or does the same thing but that ortho wall thing that shows up in a lot of the csds um i would say look at the csds on odyssey headphones that's an interesting region that's a really interesting uh, thought yeah yeah maybe notice what you see or don't see there yeah yeah. because that could be i mean this is one of the reasons one of the areas where proponents of csd have often talked about sort of the false null that shows up in a frequency response where it wouldn't like it, it would show up in time domain information but not frequency yeah. response yeah. so that is actually a very good reason to look at csds i think so i think uh, sankar may have asked me to do a video about this i need to i need to actually get back in touch with him i've been a little busy with other stuff but um i think that is something and i don't want to mess up any information but that is something that i i'm hoping we can do a cool. technical either article or video on because it's a very cool piece of technology yeah. it's a very interesting solution um to an interesting problem and uh yeah i can't say more than that at the moment because i need to ask about that and i don't fully understand exactly <laughs> what it is but i was yeah. shown some stuff that was very cool that i would say look at the csds okay. on odyssey headphones and and look at that four to forty five hundred hertz region and uh and look at the csds and see how that lines up with cool. the fr and yeah. also with the time domain performance in terms of impulse response mm-hmm. and what you see there because i think you'll find some really interesting things that are like why are audio headphones have this horrible cut at 4k <laughs> there's no treble um because i mean like fours i have some four z's here i nobody i've ever 
like had here to listen to my four Z's has ever said like, there's not enough treble. They're like, yeah, they're like relaxed at 4K. You can crank them and listen for a long time. You won't get a fatigue, you know, you won't get yeah. your ring in your ears at 4K. And I also noticed that there are some planar magnetic headphones um, that like, if you listen to, and speakers, sometimes you listen to for a long time. I'm like, man, I have like a, I have like a buzzy ringing, not like tinnitus, but like I have a, like a fatigue in my ears and the upper treble like upper mid-range lower treble on a lot of planers and i'm like that kind of bugs me and you know the odysseys don't don't ever do that i've never had yeah. that same feeling um so i have some theories about what's going on with the ortho wall and some things like that but i mean i'm not like i'm not See, the person who invents it so i now i need to get yeah. some odyssey headphones in again and do that testing i need to look yeah. at this because like, <laughs> I, like, I definitely didn't them. look at the csd for that <laughs> yeah look at the csds and listen to them like kind of medium loud like 85 okay. to 88 db for yeah. like a while and see how your ears yeah. feel compared da to damage my planes. hearing for a while is what you're saying damage, <laughs> yeah don't like don't like 90 to 100 db but listen to like 85 db for like an hour or two yeah and like see what you notice like 80, 85 bright, db like calibrated <laughs> yeah, 85 so db music calibrated. isn't actually at 85 <laughs> yeah yeah 85 db calibrated and like listen yeah. to like some metal or like something kind of like 4k like guitar like yeah, bright yeah. 4k guitars and yeah. like see what you notice get some, um, get some dream theater going or something so yeah i only have some <laughs> inklings of thoughts at, at the moment about that but hopefully yeah. i can make well, some content about that and share that with you definitely guys let me know what forward. you end up finding because that's super interesting to me yeah that, that, that type of stuff um let's do let's do two more questions and then i'll let you go how's that sound yeah. uh tyler was there anything that uh, that jumped out um there's a couple things, but uh, trying to mostly got into like speaker talk, <laughs> uh, and then I got into yeah. some other stuff like a lot of ADX. Um, I mean, I love speaker talk too. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see a question about Odyssey weight. Like, yeah, as I said, there's a weight one and some. So, so yeah, we should just talk about the weight actually in general. One of the things that I've noticed is that with some Odyssey headphones, the weight that they end up like what I, what I weigh on my scale doesn't necessarily match what what the spec shows. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, I have to imagine it's just because it hasn't been updated or something like that, or there was some change that probably, makes it, yeah. Um, but somebody was the websites not always, yeah. I don't want to say it's not the most up to date, but sometimes it's like things change or things change. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's small manufacturing changes that might change the weight slightly. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. Again, we're a small team, so sometimes it's like it changes, and it's someone's like, oh hey, we got a customer who emailed us said the website was wrong because they measured something different, and we're like, oh duh, like we'll go and change it yeah yeah so. yeah um so i think the, the question specifically was whether or not the lcd xc carbon weighs less than the wood backed one because i think on the website I... right now it shows that they're the other way around so that's why i think oh. that question yeah i would send an email to support at odyssey.com and ask them that question because i have no idea well I, the question is, says how much does the lcd xc carbon weigh um and I think it is published on the website, but I, I'm just not sure if that's accurate because it, it shows um, that it actually weighs more. <laughs> oh, okay. So maybe it is. I, I, that yeah. might be right. I, yeah. I don't know. Email support. Support yeah. at odyssey.com. They'll be able yeah. to tell you. The guy who runs support <laughs> is uh, one of the major audiophiles, really nice guy, Chris Behrens, who's, doing, who's been in some of our YouTube videos recently, who folks may have seen. Really great dude. Uh, yeah, email them and ask because I, I have no idea. Sorry, I don't, I don't have an X or an XC. Or an old, old yeah. XC. Oh, someone asks if I'm no. getting a LCD three in for review. That seems to be one that's sort of flown under the radar because I, I, I mean, I, I'd like to get in for review, but I have not. I have not. Uh, it's not on the radar right now. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. Well, I will say, um, you know, we haven't 
been as focused on our hi-fi product range lately mm -hmm. um but uh yeah like is there okay <laughs> yeah there's a lot of people who are excited for odyssey in 2021 that's that's i me too yeah um not gonna say anything more than that <laughs> um okay <laughs> me too uh, i'm also excited for 2021 yeah yeah uh, okay last question here um tyler anything jump out at you uh, I mean, most, I, I want to kind of focus it for Grover, but, um, yeah. trying to think, um, I didn't see anything oh, that's like, okay. I see, I see a question here and this relates to one of the things that uh, I've been wanting to ask. Um, maybe you can give some insight, but, um, the person asks, um, magnesium carbon, um, uh, with Odyssey would be a welcome touch. Not sure, um, if it's doable. So the and just speaking with metal 571 about about this as well um the question would be is it at all possible say you know mm. price no object if somebody were to you know reach out to odyssey and say hey i want an lcd4 but i want it all magnesium or i want it to be all you know like as lightweight as possible without the wood without and not no, not a 4z or an mx4 but like a full lcd4 is that something that that odyssey entertains or is this just like just a, a pipe dream. <laughs> uh, I can't talk about that. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we Just should wait. pick a different question. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Yeah. And I would love to be able to talk about it, but I can't yeah. talk about yeah. that. No, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Uh, I'm, ex I'm very excited for 2021. Yeah. That's what I'll say about that. Um, okay. So everybody, I guess the gist is let's pay, pay attention to what Odyssey is doing in 2021. <laughs> um, we haven't forgotten about you guys in Hi-Fi. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, because I think that was one of the things. Seeing all these other new products coming out, like yeah, the, like gaming and yeah, you know, yeah. we don't have the resources to necessarily focus on more than one channel at a time, but yeah. we do have overlapping R and D cycles. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not like we're not working on anything. Uh, we're always working on lots of new projects. We have lots of ideas and things like that. We have to focus on you know of a hundred ideas, the two or three that are going to be marketable, like we can actually bring to market. Sure. Yeah. Um, but we do a lot of R and D. And we are always working on overlapping product cycles. We've just had a bunch of gaming stuff come out, obviously, and we've had a big push for you know music industry because the LCDX uh, has been you know our most successful headphone in 2020, I believe, was our most successful headphone yeah. because the pro market needed you know work at home gear. Mm -hmm. um, but we have not forgotten uh, our beginnings in hi-fi or our lovely community. So last last quick question for you: Reveal Plus is Reveal Plus something that is is so i noticed even just this last year i think there was an update to reveal plus um how do you guys or how do you imagine reveal plus is going to be integrated when there are you know uh various different revisions of odyssey headphones does this require reveal plus being a little bit more conservative than it might otherwise be or what sort of the approach um there? conservative like in terms of well like, like if it's if it's changing the fr right um and there are d different, oh, okay. you know, yeah. vari there are variations um, on different, you know. I don't know because I'm not deeply involved with the development okay. of the software. I know our, I mean, our chief technical officer, our lead engineer is, um, you know, I'm pretty sure he comes up with the curves and he's got a complex process of averaging different ones. And, you sure. know, it's compensated for the fact that, you know, headphones should all hit a target curve, but there may be small variations like that. All that kind of complicated stuff is all taken into account. Um the complexity with that is that it's created by a company called Embody, who does a lot of spatialization and stuff like that. Okay. And 
they are the ones who update reveal plus so we can say hey we have new curves or we have new headphones or things like that need to get updated but then they have to actually like go and do it and then send us back and then we test and so it's not necessarily uh like the fastest process in the world but right again we're not a huge company so it's like we can't afford to do every piece of complex software development in-house um because we just have a we have a small dev team we have a limited number of folks um i don't know that much about that you know that said i don't know that much about it i have seen it updated a few times with new headphone models and things mm -hmm. like that um i think that's something that's been brought up though certainly in our meetings is like hey you know if there was like a running production change or if we have a new headphone or if there's like a retuning of something for example like how are we going to update it so it's something we're talking about um as always the the struggle is bandwidth because there's yeah like many hi-fi companies we have a lot of products we have a lot of different things we try to support all of our products as well as we can but when you have a team of less than 20 people and you have more SKUs than you have people it's like sometimes uh you know yeah. things things happen as we give attention to them so please let us know we you know i bring all the things that get talked about to me on the twitch and on you know our social channels and whatnot to the team and i do we you know we do talk about them and we take them seriously so yeah uh, so let us know all the comments but, we're uh, gonna go yeah. through those and we're gonna send them no i'm just kidding <laughs> every single one every single one. to my personal email address <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah well l listen it's i i know you gotta you gotta run here um but uh thank you so much for for doing this and and hopping on the live stream and uh yeah um, this was this was a ton of fun and i, I learned a lot so um yeah yeah, so, thanks, it was awesome thanks to you guys you. for having me. Um, I would love to do it again. I had yeah. a ton of fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, your chat is awesome. And also it was <laughs> great to great to hang with you. Nice to meet you, Tyler, um, officially. It's me also. For the first time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All so, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll we'll cut it there. And yeah, thanks everybody in the chat for, uh, for tuning in. And I just want to let everybody know we will also be doing another live stream next week. Next week's will be uh, on Thursday again, but it'll be, I think, a little earlier. And it's going to be with uh, Focal, so stay tuned for that. Alrighty.